Hashem Hashem Naseh Natsliach, Shiur Torah, Bukhim Abayim, Chavirai. We're back here and uh, doing our uh, continuing our series on Wednesday night, Stump the Rabbi, where uh, after you guys ask some questions, Bezod Hashem, Kadosh Baruch will give us some answers, but uh, only after we give you a little bit of Divrei Torah, a little bit of uh, sweetness from the Torah, Bezod Hashem, that uh, has to do with uh, the weekly parasha. Uh, some uh, good ideas, Baruch Hashem, that you can, uh, you know, bring to your Shulchan Shabbat and uh, see how you could apply it to your lives, how we could apply it to our lives. Bezrat Hashem. Tonight's uh, shiul will uh, be for the Refuah Shlema for Rabbanit Levana Bat Sarah, Rav Ephraim Ben Shulamit, Rabbanit Sarah Bat Anat, Avimori David Ben Nesriya, Imi Morati Doris Bat Jora. And also for the Atzlacha Rabba, for Marsha Bat Julie, Ayla Bat Marsha, Samuel Ben Marsha, Sefas Ben Marsha, Alexander Ben Marsha, Louis Ben Marsha. And uh, also, one second, I keep forgetting this. And all of Am Yisrael, Bezat Hashem, and all the righteous Noahides, Bezat Hashem, Refuah Shlema to everybody, uh, and Atzlacha uh, Rabah, especially those of you that continue to contribute, to donate as much as a person can, Bezat uh, Hashem. So uh, we're uh, continuing our series. Again, update, I got a little bit of a rebuke online that uh, last night's update was a little too long, and uh, I'm really, really not sorry, <laughs> uh, because the updates are necessary. Uh, the updates are necessary for those of you that care about our organization. Uh, I know that some of you only care about learning Torah, and I, uh, and I can appreciate that. You want to learn Torah, you want to get to it. Uh, and uh, that means you could uh, simply fast forward. Uh, but uh, if you are going to be learning Torah and growing with us, then certainly you should also care about the rest of the things that the organization does. Baruch Hashem, we have uh, the event coming up on July 27th. You're all invited here in South Florida at the Hilton. We also have our major event coming up in uh, Eretz Israel. Um, that's on uh, August 4th. You're again all invited. Bring your family, bring your friends. It's going to be a lot of Divrei uh, Chizuk, a lot of amazing things. Uh, although it's going to be mostly in English, uh, mostly in uh, Hebrew, uh, we'll say a few words in English, but it's going to be a very beautiful event that uh, certainly uh, everyone should be involved in, even if you don't understand a single word it'll still be worth it to be part of that uh, Kedusha. For those of you that want to uh, join the raffle to potentially win the ticket, uh, to get a uh, round-trip ticket to Eretz Yisrael, uh, and also want to contribute to helping us share the new USBs that we have, the eight new USBs uh, that we have of the different series of lectures that we have, whether it's the Gerat Ramban, the Era of Mashiach, Pirkei Avot, Stump the Rabbi, uh, and the others, go to tikunabrit.live, tikunabrit.live, and you can sponsor uh, some of the USBs over there. If you want to get the raffle ticket, then it's a uh, $1,000 per ticket, uh, and we'll announce the winner on uh, July 27th. If it's simply to sponsor USBs, then you could just simply donate on that site, also any amount that you want. Uh, the difference is that if you sponsor the $1,000, 
uh, you'll get the uh, ticket, uh, the raffle ticket that you could potentially win. And also, uh, you could also get the actual physical DVDs, uh, the uh, USBs themselves. Uh, for anyone who wants to uh, buy the uh, new Talit uh, with the Hatara uh, that we have, uh, or the new USBs, or the cup, or the other items we have, you go to our uh, main website, bezatashem.org. And for those of you that want to watch the uh, Shurim live without the uh, Facebook distractions, go to bh.live. Uh, and uh, those of you that want to watch the Shurim, uh, you know, after it's live, then you could simply watch it on our app, on the, uh, you know, on the app stores, the Bezal Hashem app, or go to uh, bhtorah.org, uh, and you'll be able to watch the Shurim over there. In Spanish, we also have BH Spanish, and Baruch Hashem, lots and lots of uh, uh, Shurim on YouTube as well. You can just type my name or type Bezal Hashem, and you'll see many Shurim in different uh, languages, uh, Baruch Hashem. Uh, last but not least, uh, any of you that have uh, not given, or even if you have, you ran out of books, we just got uh, some more copies of, uh, of my new book that you can distribute in your community. It's only in Hebrew currently. Bezat Hashem, one day we'll have it in English, but uh, we still have the campaign to distribute the new book. Uh, you can get it to your community. Anyone that wants to buy it, uh, just an individual copy for themselves, Bezat Hashem, soon we will have it on Amazon where you can buy it uh, on its own. So with that being said, we cut the time a little bit from yesterday's update. We'll go into this parasha, try to see what we can learn from the Torah. Now, over the years, we uh, typically have uh, focused on the end of the parasha more so than the beginning of the parasha. Uh, the end of the parasha being much more relevant to the average person out there today, especially in the, in the West, especially in the, in the United States, in England, and Australia, where the assimilation rates are astounding. Literally the only other time in history where we saw that much assimilation, where Jews are marrying non-Jews and uh, destroying their uh, lineage, destroying their Masoah, destroying their connection to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, uh, is at the time of uh, the Holocaust, right? Before the Holocaust, the assimilation uh, and intermarriage uh, was uh, over 80% around the world, and in some places like Germany, it was over 90%. And uh, this is one of the things that uh, we learned from this week's parasha, that uh, intermarriage between Jews and Gentiles is not only forbidden uh, by the Torah, both for Jews and for Gentiles, but uh, it's one of the things that Hashem hates the most. So much so that in the end of this week's parashat Balak, we see that uh, HaKadosh Baruch Hu nearly annihilated Am Yisrael as a result of them uh, being intimate with the, uh, with the Goyot, uh, with the non-Jewish uh, uh, women that uh, you know, led them to a lot of uh, bad things, one of them obviously being idolatry. But needless to say, this is one of the things that uh, we really have to shiver when we think about it because unlike all of the other things that we see in a Torah where Kadosh Baruch Hu warned us, or there was a, you know certain things that he said before punishment came, Arav Pinkos Alav Shalom says that the uh, this uh, uh, plague that Hashem brought unto Am Yisrael after they sinned with the uh, with these uh, with these non-Jewish women uh, is the only time that Kadosh Baruch Hu nearly annihilated Am Yisrael without a warning. So this showing us obviously how horrible this sin is 
in the eyes of a Kadosh Baruch Hu. It doesn't matter that she's a nice girl. It doesn't matter that he's a nice guy. If you're a Jew and your uh, person that you're with is not Jewish, it's forbidden to be together. It's forbidden to even talk. Uh, and uh, it's, a, it's one of those things where a person has to understand and get their head around it. And of course, the Zohar Kadosh says very, very harsh things about uh, people that are uh, intimate with, uh, you know, with someone that's not of uh, the same, that's, uh, you know, Jew and a Gentile, uh, where so much so that the person that is uh, doing it is assured to have uh, uh, tragedy come to their life, lose their money, uh, uh, you know, and, and a lot of other things. So this is one of the things that we focused on throughout the years. We've discussed it extensively. Anyone that wants to know more details of intermarriage and, and, and the magnitude of it can easily go to our channels uh, that I described earlier and just type in uh, intermarriage, assimilation, uh, you know, something like that, or even simply the, the, the name of the parasha itself. And you'll hear many, many different insights from our sages about this particular topic. But today we're going to try to do something a little bit uh, different. We're going to try to focus on the beginning of the parasha. And the reason why is because, uh, not just because we haven't discussed it as extensively, but rather because the beginning of the parasha has a lot to do with the end of the parasha. Meaning that your average person that you tell them, listen, I understand that your uh, non-Jewish girlfriend is a very nice lady and she's wonderful and she even wants you to be religious, but it's forbidden according to the Torah. And many times a person will come up with different excuses. I remember myself bringing those excuses of what do you mean? How could it be forbidden? If it was forbidden, why would God send her? And I understand the, the logic behind it. And I can assure you that all of that logic comes from the Yetzirah himself, from the Satan that is trying to destroy a person. And the same thing goes with anyone else that you have in your life that simply does not want to comply with any part of the Torah, whether it's learning Torah every single day, which you're obligated to do because anyone, the Gemara says, anyone who doesn't learn Torah every single day is not fulfilling the Torah, is not fulfilling Vigita Boyomam Valayla, the verse in the Torah that says that you have to uh, uh, study Torah in the morning and at night. A person that does not study Torah has simply no uh, share of the world to come. It's a very, very big deal. Someone doesn't want to put on tefillin every day with the exception of Shabbat and holidays. Someone who doesn't want to eat kosher or they want to eat kosher light, you know, like kosher whenever they want or kosher according to them or kosher according to their friends. People simply take any mitzvah that they like and they keep it. Mitzvah they don't like, they don't want to keep it. You tell women out there, you have to be modest. Not just for... Uh, you know, uh, getting the men not to think of you, but for yourself, to give yourself some self-respect and also to give yourself a chance to go to heaven and not to go to Gainom, both in this world and the next. And many times women will tell you, listen, I understand, I appreciate it, I even believe what you say, but it's hard for me, or I'm afraid that people are going to make fun of me, or I'm afraid this, I'm afraid that, and all types of other types of excuses that she simply says, listen, I get what you're saying, but I'm not ready to be modest. I get what you're saying, but I'm not ready to keep Shabbat. I get what you're saying, but I'm not ready to cover my hair even though I'm married. I get what you say, but I'm not ready to have a kosher business because the non-kosher business pays a whole lot of money. So every one of us has made those excuses at some point. The question is, do they have any value in Shemaim? Does Hashem actually take any of those excuses that we have to forsake His Torah into consideration? Does He say, oh yeah, you know what? It really was hard. Oh yeah, you know what? Their rabbi wasn't that good. Oh yeah, you know what? They really, uh, you know, were really busy. 
is any of that really taken into account? So we have to see that everything is in a Torah Baruch Hashem, delve into it and delve into it because everything is in it, says the Mishnah in Avot. And one of the things we see is we see that the Torah tells us different, uh, uh, different stories in order for us to learn from them, in order to learn from certain people, both righteous and wicked. In a Torah, you have the righteous Yaakov and the wicked brother that he had, Esav. You learn from both of them what to do and what not to do. You have the righteous Moshe Rabbeinu, the, the, the prophet of all prophets, and then you have the wicked Bil'am, Bil'am Arasha, who was also a prophet that the Gemara says that he actually had a certain ability that even Moshe Rabbeinu did not have, where he knew that uh, the exact time that uh, Hashem judges the people. And because he knew that particular time, he was gifted that ability in order for, the Gemara Masechet Abu Dazara says, in order for the Gentiles not to complain that they didn't have big prophets like the Jewish people did, so he gave them a prophet that has a power if you will even greater than Moshe Rabbeinu in a certain aspect but we see that instead of using that power to connect to Hashem to follow Hashem obviously he used it for his own wickedness and the reality is is that we have to see that he really was he uh, a lost cause from the beginning or did he bring it to themselves did he have a nature that's similar to some of our own natures that when we make excuses did he have it? Did his excuse give him anything? Did it have any value? And these are some of the things Bezat Hashem will try to cover through uh, through the shoe. So we start off the parasha trying to get a basic understanding of what's going on here. Obviously, we've had a lot of turmoil in uh, Sefer Bamidbar, the book of Numbers. You have Parashat Korach, the Miraglim, uh, you know, both uh, Aaron Cohen and Miriam, you know, pass away. Lots of going on, lots of, uh, you know, uh, action, if you will. And now we have Parashat Balak. Parashat Balak is, a, uh, is one of those parashot where there's a whole lot happening. But again, we've, we have personally have uh, spent a lot of time on the end of the parasha. And today, we're going to do something a little different. So in the beginning of the parasha, we see that Balak ben Tzipo saw that, uh, uh, that all of Israel had done to the Amorites. What does it really mean that Balak saw what Am Israel did to the Amorites? What, what does it actually mean? So much so that it actually says that the, uh, uh, Balak was disgusted, was disgusted because of the children of Israel. Uh, of Israel. What, what, is, uh, what does this really uh, entail? So first and foremost, we have to understand that Balak bin Tzipol, he was the, uh, the king of Moab, and he himself lost the war to Sihon, who were, who were Amorites. Uh, and he lost land to them. And after seeing that Am Yisrael, through the power of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, defeated the giants of Sihon, defeated his brother, some say his father, which was Og, uh, defeated them and uh, destroyed them, this literally made uh, uh, um, Balak uh, disgusted. Why disgusted though? I mean, you could say made him scared, which is, is one of the things that it says, but it also says he was disgusted by it. One of the things, Rabotai, that you'll learn as you serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu more and more each and every day, as you learn more Torah, sanctify yourself, do more mitzvot, Give more tzedakah, help more people, do more chesed. Uh, of course, protect your breed, become more and more modest as the uh, days go on, and uh, build a family of modesty and beauty and holiness. You'll see that the holier you become, 
the more detested you become by the unholy. Meaning that holiness, Kedusha, cannot coexist with Tum'ah, with impurity in peace. It is not possible for the two to coexist. It is not possible for you to be friends. It is not possible for you to even be on the same page. The holier you are, the more disgusted you're making the unholy. Those that are still putzim, immodest, immoral, promiscuous, filthy, disgusting. They want the boys to be girls and the boys to be with boys. All of those people literally look at you as holy as you are and they're disgusted. How could they be disgusted by somebody holy? How could Balak be disgusted by Am Yisrael, Am Kadosh? How could they be disgusted? It's not that they're disgusted by their holiness but rather they're disgusted by themselves because they see what's possible if they simply serve Hashem. If you see an example, you see a Balak, what does he do? He is with everything. He does everything just like Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, all of the evil kings, Paro, all of them were full of bestiality. Their, their wives were animals like Bilam, his wife was a donkey. Belshazzar was married to a dog. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was married to anything. Literally every day was something else. Men, women, dogs, cats, everything and anything. As we discussed in our shiur a few months ago, where the, uh, the, the Torah talks about incest and, and, and bestiality on a regular basis in order to remind us not only what is holy, but also what is unholy, because this will affect us through the end of days. And we see the world today where you have people going to Congress in America and different institutions and governments in the UK and other governments where they're promoting the unholy, they're promoting homosexuality, they're promoting pedophilia, simply calling it a sexual preference, they're promoting all of the filth and disgusting things in the world. And unfortunately, this did not start overnight. This is one of the things, this is the culmination of evil actions, the culmination of promiscuity, the culmination of the free-for-all mentality that you saw started in the 1960s and 70s here in the U.S. and other places where if you look at pictures from 100 years ago in America, the way people went to the beach is literally more modest than they people today go to, uh, go to weddings and to, uh, and to uh, black tie events. Uh, the way they went to the beach was literally covered head to toe. But then as times change, people literally took off their clothes. And today, you're not really sure if you go out in the streets and you have the uh, tikkun that you actually have to see other people out there. Doesn't matter where you live. You're not really sure whether you entered a store to buy some groceries or you entered somebody's shower because no one else wants to wear any clothes. It's confusing. You're not really sure where's the water is going to drop on me. Am I in a, where, where did I go? And the reality is, Rabotai, this type of mentality initially was with adults. Now it's with children. You see that the average children clothes, they're tight fitting. They're, 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 they're literally, it's, they're selling you clothes where in my days they called certain types of clothing uh, unisex where you could have a belt or a shoe or whatever it is that literally was okay for both boys and girls because of the type of color that it was or the type of uh, clothing that it was. Today, there is no such thing. Literally, everything is for everyone. You could see little kids, boys walking around with dresses, little girls walking around with pants and, and, and less, unfortunately. So this type of filth has infected our society so much so that you actually have 
wicked pedophiles being given the stage in Congress, in uh, you know, in, in in major institutions, telling everyone that we need to change the educational system to train everyone and force everyone not to consider gender there is no such thing as a woman that is uh based on biology uh, based on the uh, the the members the, the the parts of her body no it's all based on preference and yet people are surprised that pedophilia is, uh, is is skyrocketing people are getting arrested all of these transgender filthy disgusting excuse of a human being uh, are literally running rampant they're being allowed and celebrated by allowing them to go into kindergartens into preschools into uh, all types of uh, public schools and unfortunately, this is also affecting the Jewish community where you have so-called uh, uh, synagogues uh, telling you to become more accepting of the LGBT and all of the, uh, the the filth that's out there that Torah says is clearly disgusting in the eyes of Hashem. It's called an abomination. Nothing is called as bad as that. They can, Kadosh Baruch Hu considers bestiality, which is man and animal, and homosexuality, man and man, women with women, the same exact thing. But unfortunately, today society is upside down, and you even have rabbis uh, uh, like the Rasha from England, Mervis, uh, writing a book to try to tell people to become more accepting of it. Accepting if they stop it absolutely will help them do tshuva and remove the toeva from their life. But accepting them as they are is 100% forbidden. To tell them that everything is okay and you can continue desecrating Hashem's name with your behavior, you continue acting like a woman even though you're a man, you continue telling your son that he's really your daughter, you continue telling, telling your daughter that she could just do whatever she wants, whenever she wants, no one cares, this is forbidden according to the Torah. And unfortunately, Rabotai, these are some of the things that are mentioned in the Torah that we have simply ignored. And Parashat Balak starts off with this type of mentality, this type of teachings, where we see that Balak is disgusted. He is unho- as unholy as it gets. He's as unholy as it gets. He's a filthy, disgusting human being. But... He is disgusted from the holy nation. He's disgusted by the Jewish people. Why? Because the filthy people look at the righteous people and they realize what's available to them if they simply censored themselves, if they simply limited themselves, restricted themselves, contained themselves, if they simply behaved like decent human beings that their grandparents were, if they simply worked off of things that make sense to, to, to the normalcy of society rather than make sense to fulfill their own lust and their, their own desires. And that's the reason why the holiness and the impurity that's out there cannot coexist in peace. And all of us are obligated to take this into account because it does affect us. Whether you're Jewish or not, whether you're in America or in Israel or in Africa or wherever you are, it will affect you at some point. If you don't draw that line, that red line, to be very, very clear in your household, in your education, in the places that uh, you go to, in the things that you watch, if you don't draw that line, you'll see that line get further and further from reality. And unfortunately, you'll have a a very, very big test that you're bringing on to yourself. So, Balak is disgusted by Am Yisrael and uh, in essence it's like a person that all of his life or you know he has dated all types of promiscuous women 
and he uh, is one of these Hollywood stars where he can get whatever he wants to get. The women chase him, something that's uh, also in itself the opposite of normalcy. You know, women are chasing men. Women are talking about their promiscuity openly and proudly, and uh, they, they're even being given uh, airtime to talk about it on air. It's really just, just disgusting. But... To the world at large this is what they want or else they wouldn't have ratings or else they, people wouldn't watch and what you see is that the guy that's dating all of these girls he doesn't make any of them his wife he makes her his wife for the day for the week for the month but then he replaces her with somebody else at some point he uh looks at his life and he's not complaining about anything he's fulfilling his his his, his, his lust He's having a good time, a few, uh, a, a few new uh, wives here and there, a few drugs here and there, a few uh, thefts here and there. He doesn't really question much. In fact, he thinks that the more he gets, the, 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 the more likely he is to eventually arrive at the unhappiness, uh, at the happiness that he's seeking because he still has that emptiness in his heart. But one day, Kadosh Baruch Hu sends him a personal rebuke, and he has an encounter with a holy person. Whether that encounter is face-to-face, and he speaks to him, and has that merit to do so, or it's simply looking from a distance. He sees him, you know, across the table from him. He sees him in the same room as him. He sees him in the same office as him. He sees him on screen, and he sees what a holy person has, and he sees that holy person's wife. And he is disgusted. Why? Because at that moment, he gets a reality check where he realizes, look at this. This guy, this guy that doesn't have even 10% of the money that I have, doesn't have 10% of the fame that I have, doesn't have 10% of the strength and the power that I have, look what he has. He has a wife that's only committed to him. She won't even look at me. She won't even look at anybody else. A wife that brought him these little righteous kids that call him Abba, that call him father, don't call him by the first name, respect him, wait patiently, speak uh, without cursing. All of these kids, everyone is, uh, everyone is brilliant, everyone is beautiful. You could literally see the Kedusha in the kids. You could see the Kedusha in their marriage. Look how, you could see the happiness in their modest marriage. You can see it. It's as clear as day, especially to the person that's impure especially the person that's impure because he has something to compare it to he looks at the zona that's next to him whether she's his wife for the day or for the last few years doesn't really make much of a difference he realizes that she was the village bicycle he realizes that she's one of those people that you have no idea where she lost count with how many different husbands she's had he realizes that any Anything that comes out of her, surely he's going to be a little piglet like her. He realizes that in reality, he has garbage and he only realized it now. And there is no way in the world that any righteous woman, any holy woman, any woman that is modest, any woman that respects herself would even look at his filthy self, the way he is, the way he dresses, the way he behaves, the way he talks. No holy woman would ever look at such a person. No one. And he is disgusted with the current circumstances because he realizes that in reality, he could have had that if he simply contained himself and didn't follow drugs, didn't follow fame, materialism, and simply anything that walks. So here we see that Balak is disgusted with his current life, which in essence is even more revolting to him 
that these holy people are winning. If you told me these holy people were homeless and they're suffering and Balak is, uh, is, 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 is high and, and he's having a good time and he's running the world, then you say, okay, listen, uh, why, why should I be holy? Why should I be holy if they're all homeless and they're all poor and all? No, but here he sees they're conquering the world. They're beating everybody. The giants, the same giants, Sichon and Og, that defeated me, meaning Balak, they defeated them like they were little flies. So not only do they have the beautiful marriage and the beautiful kids and, and, and the money, and, but they're also powerful. So he is simply disgusted with his life and it makes him hate them even more, but also fear them. Now that fear, of course, is relevant to each and every single one of us because one of the things we see is that Am Yisrael was not looking to go to war with Balak. They weren't looking for a fight. There, you know, Am Yisrael is not allowed to just go look for fights. We're not the, we're not one of those nations that's just looking to conquer whatever we, uh, whatever we see because we see that we like the flowers there. Hashem gave us a land. That's where we're going. We have no business uh, to be next to you to uh, to deal with you. And the only reason why they went to war with Amalek or with Sichon or with Og is because they got attacked. That's it. And the same thing goes with Midian. So the problem here is that Balak doesn't see the world that way. He sees things from his perspective. If you're powerful, that means you want everything. If you're powerful, that means you're going to take everything. So it's kill or be killed mentality. And he starts getting anxiety over the fact that this nation is massive. It's powerful. It's holy. And they're on their honest on this way is him. And he is sure they're going to attack him. And one of the things that eventually happens is that that actually happens, but it's not because Am Yisrael had that plan. This is one of the things that a person needs to apply to their life because we see the Bet Alevi in our series, Bitachon uh, Be'ashem. We discussed it extensively over 16 lectures where many of the problems that a person has are actually self-inflicted where those problems are coming to him because of his anxiety, her anxiety. She's anxious about money. He's anxious about finding a zivug. He's, they're anxious about getting a job. They're anxious about, you know, getting kicked out of their house or, uh, or, or their electric going out on Shabbat or whatever it is. They're anxious about it, not because they have a reason. Just simply, I'm anxious. I'm an anxious person. I'm a nervous person. The Beta Levi says... That anxiety comes from a lack of confidence in Hashem. And lack of confidence in Hashem is a violation of the Torah. And the punishment for that is that Hashem brings to the person what they're afraid of. You're afraid of losing electricity? You're going to lose electricity. You're afraid of not having money? You're not going to have any money. You're afraid of being alone? Hashem's going to make you alone. Why? Why didn't you have confidence in Hashem? Why? Why didn't you have, did Hashem give you any reason not to have confidence in him? Did he, did he leave you not breathing yesterday? Did he leave you hungry yesterday? What did he do to you that you have no confidence in him? If anything, you should thank him 24 hours a day. So the Bet Alevi says that the anxiety that a person has is a result of lack of confidence in Hashem. And the punishment for it is measure for measure where Hashem actually brings the person that anxiety. That in itself is a scary punishment because in reality, it's, we see here that HaKadosh Baruch does not like for us to be afraid of anything other than Him. Further on, we move on with the parasha and we start getting into the, uh, the next part where the uh, Balak 
sees that there is a uh, uh, there's a big nation coming and he uh, he is he knows that uh, Sichon, although they lost the war to Israel, they beat him, and he thinks, wait a minute, how did they beat me? Ah, they beat me because of Bilam. Bilam helped them. So even though Sichon used Bilam to do, help them destroy Balak. Balak doesn't really put any value on that. The fact that Bilam tried to annihilate Balak doesn't matter to him. The fact that Bilam tried to annihilate all of his people doesn't matter to him. The fact that Bilam was very happy that people died from Balak's side doesn't make a difference to him. All he can think about is like, yeah, but we're from the same town. We're from the same town. He's from Aram, I'm from Aram. Yeah, but he's from Aram and he's your enemy. He joined your enemy. Yeah, enemy, not even worse from the same town. This is the logic of the impure. The logic of the impure is always going to go to, oh, what's my current interest? Yeah, but don't you realize that, as my dear wife, the Rabbanit, always says, if they do it for you, they'll do it to you? Don't you realize that if you trust this person to, uh, to, to help you hurt somebody just because you're going to give him some money, eventually he's going to do it to you? And in this case, he actually already did it to you? All he cares about is that there is a stronger nation and the way he describes it is that this nation is stronger mimeni. mimeni. What's mimeni? We see that Balak in his delusional godless life thinks that he's the one that runs the world. So when he, instead of describing the Am Yisrael as being stronger than his, his army, stronger than his nation he's saying they're stronger than me personally me many instead of me menu which is plural he uses me many this is also the difference between a holy person and a impure person the holy person anytime they they say something they're going to do whatever they can to take into account that nothing that they have is due to them everything is due to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, granting it to them. Whether it be wisdom or wealth or, 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 or beauty, whatever it is. And whatever they're doing, it's only Be'ezrat Hashem. It's only with the help of Hashem. The problem is most of the time, people say, you know, when, when, it, comes to, uh, when it comes to their uh, success, you know, they want to attain success, they say, oh yeah, you know, Be'ezrat uh, Hashem, uh, maybe Hashem will help me get this success. But when it comes uh, comes to failure, oh, why did Hashem do this to me? Meaning the failure, surely Hashem gave it to you. But the success, maybe he can help you. This is obviously a distorted way of looking at things. Bilam was even worse. He was so arrogant, he could not even see anything above himself, anything next to himself. He thought that he is the army, he is the power. And this is, again, one of the big differences between someone that is trying to attain holiness and has achieved it, he's always going to, or she's always going to say, Mimenu, from us. You know, we're going to go. Uh, we want. It's always we. It's either we because you realize that there's more people in your family, in your team, in your company. Your company is doing something, not just you. Your team is doing something, not just you. Uh, your, uh, uh, your family is doing something, not just you. Or even if it is literally just you, it's still you and Akados Baruch Hu. So a person looks at that from that perspective and then they realize that, hey, you know what? There's really no I. There's really no I. 
the quicker a person removes i i did this i did that the quicker they are to get on the path of starting to become more modest and more humble the more a person focuses on i did this and i did that the further they are from the humility that they need to have now further on the uh uh balaka continues and says uh uh that he wants to get bilam to, uh, to join and uh he says to uh he says to uh bilam in, in his message ki adati et asher tevarech mevorach v'asher taor you are for i know that whoever you bless is blessed and whoever you curse is cursed how does he know because he knows that the uh sihon was uh, defeated him as we said before defeated him through the help of uh of a uh of bilam where is this written in the torah itself in parashat chukat last week's parasha when uh when sihon comes to uh attack uh am israel and am israel defeats them when it the uh, the uh, sihon is uh described it says that uh, regarding the allegorizers they would say enter Cheshbon let Cheshbon be built and established and as the city of Sichon this is in essence talking about the defeat of Moab by Sichon so who are these allegorizers Chachamim Rashi says here that uh one of the great Chachamim uh, that uh, you can't survive a single verse in the Torah without his clarification. Rashi says the allegorizers, the Muslim, is referring to Bilam. Bilam, after beating Moab, after beating Balak, he was laughing. Ah, look at this. Look at this. We, we entered Cheshbon, and we're going to turn this into Sichon now. So he says, oh, I know you guys, you, uh, you helped Sichon. So now you can help me. What about the fact that he tried to kill you or anything else? Doesn't make a difference. Doesn't make a difference. This is also something that you see in uh, in society today, where you, uh, if somebody does not have God as part of his life, he'll make whatever decision is necessary just to fulfill his desire, his lust, whether his lust is power or anything else. You saw this in the recent government in Israel with this Rasha Naftali Bennett, Shem Rashaim Yerkav. Uh, he uh, told everybody that uh, to elect him as president or prime minister in uh, in Israel, he's going to protect the religious people. But the second he got elected, who did he make a partnership with? With the Palestinian terrorists, with the lefty liberals, giving them 53 billion, 53 billion to the Palestinian terrorists. Literally, if you would have given it to the Nazis, it might have actually been a better place. It's unbelievable how someone that wears a little quarter keep on his head felt it was perfectly fine to give $53 billion to terrorists, to people that are, want him and everybody else dead. But of course, HaKadosh Baruch Hu made him uh, make a joke out of himself and he's not in government right now, but unfortunately the temporary placement, Lapid, is, a, is, a, is even worse than he is. He's only there, Baruch Hashem, only for a few months. But already we see that this uh this lapid already made a meeting today a very uh 
media covered it. I didn't really follow anything. All I know is that there was a meeting and both of them said stupid things. Uh, one said, if I had your hair, the other one said, if I had uh, something else about the other person, your looks or whatever it was, they admired each other's looks Two unusual people to say the least. But uh, the truth is, if you see these two people that are leading their countries, if you will, both of them are enemies of the state. Both of them are enemies of the state. And while Biden goes to visit Israel, he writes a check to the Palestinian terrorists for $500 million. Like, if it wasn't bad enough that you're doing everything possible to do anything favorable, uh, for, for, to undo anything that was done favorable to Am Israel, to Eretz Israel, it's not enough. In your, during your visit, you're writing a check to the Palestinian terrorists for $500 million. And the other idiot, uh, 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 Lapid, is uh, he's doing everything possible to partner up with all of the enemies. Literally, your conquerors, your destroyers will come from within you. But how, how, where is this? This is in the Torah. We see that Balak, Balak the Rasha, is partnering with a person that tried to destroy him. Which is unbelievable. So now, we see here that to follow the ways of the wickedness, not only it doesn't work in your favor in the long run as far as heaven, hell, and so on, but even during your life, the further a person is from Hashem, the more blurry the world is. They don't see things clearly, and in fact, they'll see things the opposite of what they are. And you see this in society today. The people that are observant of Torah, that uh, learn Torah every single day, any question you can ask them, it doesn't really make a difference what the subject is. It could be a subject directly pertaining to the Torah that they're learning or teaching, or it could be a question relating something relating to business, doesn't matter what business, medicine, doesn't matter what medicine, uh, anything you ask them, they'll give you a clear decision. Whenever they give you the decision, sometimes it's right away, sometimes it's later on, but when they give you something, that's something you could take to the bank. Why? They're, they're, literally, it's Akadosh Baruch Hu is giving them the words to say. Giving them the words to say. Everything is as clear as day. Whereas you ask your average person out there, doesn't learn Torah, doesn't do mitzvah, doesn't do anything out there. You ask him, what are you, what are you in school for? He doesn't know. Do you want to get married? I'm not sure. You're married now. You're going to have kids? Nah, I'm not really sure. Uh, what's your ambition? You know, you just started working for our company. What do you want to do? Oh, I want to be the CEO. Okay, fine. How do you want to get there? Oh, I don't know. Like, they don't know anything. They don't know anything. It's not a surprise that, you know, in today in, in universities that are full of, uh, you know, in America, full of immodesty, immorality, and everything else in between, no one expects the student to even pick a major, pick something that they can actually learn enough to use it as a vocation, something they can actually make money with. Schools, parents, no one expects the kid to pick anything until his junior year. Meaning that by the time he actually picked the subject that may have anything to do with his or her life, you've already spent two and a half to three years of your parents' money or the government's money or both uh, to, to, you know, just to figure it out. Literally, it is the biggest scam in the world, and this is acceptable. This is perfectly acceptable in society. Why? Oh, he's only a sophomore, so he doesn't know what he wants to do yet. What do you mean he doesn't want to? The school's $50,000 a semester. You're telling me that you're paying $50,000 
for six months, or actually less than six months, and you don't even know what he's going to do with what he's learning? Like, he doesn't actually have a target. He doesn't have a point. He doesn't have any direction. Oh, you know, he wants to either be a doctor or an astronaut or, or a farm. What? What do you mean? That's everything. You might as well say he wants to be something. Like, you're telling me you're spending $50,000 or more for a few months just for him to go hang out with his friends, do some drugs, be promiscuous, go to parties, and you're okay with that for at least the first two and a half to three years? And even after three years, he could still change his major and his decision. And even after four years, he's most likely not even going to use that degree for real life. And you're okay with it because you want a little certificate? How about this? Donate that $50,000 to Bezat Hashem. I'll go on my, on my computer, type you up whatever you want. I'll send it to you, first class mail via UPS. Okay? I'll even put it in a frame for you. You can pick the color. And that's it. Put it on the wall. Save yourself the money. Keep the kid at home. Send him to a yeshiva. It's unbelievable what has become acceptable in society because the parents are confused. The kids are confused. Parents have no idea what's the purpose of life and they're already in their 40s and 50s and 60s. Of course, the kid doesn't know what the purpose of life is. All he knows is whatever desire he has, he has to fulfill it. No different than a dog. No different than a cat, no different than a bull, no different than a ram, no different than any other beast in the world walking among men. The reality is, Rabotai, is that when a person is removed from a Kadosh Baruch Hu, removed from a Torah, they simply have the life of an animal, just an animal that's walking on two. No, no direction. What's directing them is their lust. Lust for honor, lust for money, lust for, you know, uh, intimacy and so on and so forth. So you see here that the decisions that they make more often than not are disastrous. The amount of mistakes that are being made on an average week uh, uh, by the average person is literally incomprehensible. We're not talking about small mistakes. The more powerful a person is, the more successful a person is, the bigger the mistakes. You see people that literally sign a $100 million contract to be an athlete, to, to go run around with some ball, or to throw a ball, or whatever, or to hit a ball, or all the people that have movies to, to perform for a few weeks, and they get $100 million and $50 million, and then they do this not just once, they do this multiple times, and they're literally being given like a treasure. A treasure that is like uh, you only talk about in, in, in fairy tales. And they're given this treasure. They're given 100 million, 50 million, 500 million, all types of huge amounts of money. Or they start a company or they start a product and they make a fortune that way. And then these idiots, what do they do? After wasting their money on a bunch of things that they don't even need. Aside from that, they risk it all. For what? For some girl, for some guy, for some for some filthy, disgusting lust, some some uh, some prostitute, some uh, rape, some uh, uh, violence. They risk everything. You see famous stories. There's no end. If you watch my uh, film, The World of Lies, how many of these filthy people did people admire? Michael Jackson, Bill Cosby, Steve Jobs. All of these people, and you see how these people literally made the worst decisions in the world. They were very smart people when it came to that profession. But everything else around it, literally, you, you're not even sure how this person arrived at any success. 
beyond going to the bathroom with such a mentality. You took Harvey Weinstein that had literally a, a, a empire of billions and billions of dollars, risked it all. Why? Just to have a few things that, he, that don't belong to him. Women that don't belong to him. Children that don't belong to him. Everything that don't, doesn't belong to him. He wanted everything that doesn't belong to him. You can buy everything you want, but you only wanted something that didn't belong to you. This is common in society and it's important for us to know this too is in the torah when a person lives a life that is in essence forsaking the torah thinking that he or she knows better than the torah so we see here this is balak this is balak but what about bilam bilam the bilam the rasha that in essence he spoke to god you would think if somebody knows who god is believes in the one god even if their uh, uh ideology is wrong even if their uh, the way they believe in god is wrong like the christians that believe in idolatry because their god is uh, divided into three or you have the uh, the muslims that uh, their uh, their god hates his own people all types of demented mentalities but nonetheless you could say these people are religious according to them so what happens with those people? What happens with those people, Rabotai? You still see them making those very same mistakes and in fact, many times worse mistakes than a person that is completely removed from God. How come? Bilam. Bilam is that example where Bilam is interested in being this mercenary that goes and curses the Jewish people. He hates the Jewish people. He knows about the Jewish people. He has known about the Jewish people. He was one of the three uh, generals that uh, uh, served Paro, where when uh, Moshe Rabbeinu was a just a little baby, that uh, Batya, the daughter of Paro, uh, found him, and uh, Bilam saw that uh, this little baby Moshe took the crown of Paro. And he told Paro, this is probably the kid. This is the kid that's probably going to try to take your kinghood. He's going to try to kill you one day. And he literally tried to entice Paro to kill Moshe Rabbeinu, this little baby. He hated Moshe. He hated Am Yisrael, despite being a person that speaks to Hashem, a prophet. So now, you see this Bilam. Bilam has a target. What's the target? Target is to destroy Am Yisrael. Yeah, but you do realize that Hashem gave the Torah to Am Yisrael. Yes. You do realize that Hashem said to Am Yisrael, you're my chosen people. Yes. You do realize that HaKadosh Baruch Hu loves Am Yisrael. Yes. You do realize that Am Yisrael follows the Torah that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave them. Yes. But you still want to curse them. You still want to go against them. You still want to destroy them. What gives? Like, how, how, how do you rationalize this? Well, it was given to me. An opportunity. I didn't ask. I was just sitting here with my wife, the donkey. And, uh, you know, Balak sent me some messengers that wants me to, uh, he appreciates my, uh, my abilities, despite the fact that I tried killing him. And uh, he wants to hire me as a mercenary to go and curse them. What's the problem? Yeah, but you're, you're cursing the very same nation that God loves. Yeah, but if God loved them so much, why did he allow Balak to, uh, to come to me? That's the rationalization of the heretic, of the wicked Bilam. So now, Balak comes and he is looking to do the job. But first he has to be enticed. So Balak shows him that he's ready. 
He's ready to pay him whatever price, and he's also ready to give him whatever tools. And it says in the uh, in the Torah that uh, when um, when Balak sent the first line of messengers, they came to him with ksamim biyadam. Ksamim biyadam. They came with charms in their hands. What is this charms? What is love charms? You cut the heart in half. I love you. I love you. Best friends forever. What is this charms? Says the Chizkuni. The Chizkuni, one of the great sages, gave commentary in the Torah. He has some extraordinary chidushim. He says these charms were the uh, the uh, way to serve the idols where they had dolls. They had dolls and they would stick pins in those dolls in order to kill their enemies. Today they call this voodoo. That's what the uh, Balak came sent voodoo dolls to Bilam saying, listen, I'm familiar with what you do. I got the tools even. We're ready. We're not looking to fight with swords and uh, no, no, we want you to win the war for us. We're willing to pay any price for it and we even got you the equipment. All the voodoo dolls you want. That's the charms. So now, Bilam sees this. And uh, he's not uh, shying away. He said, okay, I'll ask, uh, I'll ask God. Making it seem as if he's this righteous person that is going to ask God what to do. HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells Bilam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the nation. For it is blessed. Simple. Answer is no. Not only no, don't go with them, but no because the nation you want to curse, they're blessed. What does Bil'am say to the people? He wakes up in the morning and he says to the officers of Balak, go back to your land, for there is no desire before Hashem to allow me to go with you. Hashem doesn't want me to go. Is that complete? No. Why not? Because it's not that Hashem doesn't want you to go and that's it. He gave you a reason. I don't want you to go because the nation you want to curse is blessed. You can't curse them. What's the point of going? You're not allowed to curse them. I will not allow it. But he didn't tell this to the officers. Why? He wanted to leave the door open. If I tell them, listen, God said I can't curse them. He said, they're blessed people. Then they would just leave and never come back. But if I tell them, no, God doesn't, it's not the will of God. He doesn't desire for me to go. Then it sounds like, oh, the door is still kind of open. Why? Implying that maybe he doesn't desire for me to go today, but if you come back next week, maybe he'll change his mind. So Balak sent officers again, even higher-ranking officers. And they come to Bilam and says to him, don't, don't uh, refrain now from coming to me. I give you great honor. So what does Bilam respond to him? Bilam says, if Balak were to give me a house full of silver and gold, I would not be permitted to transgress the decree of the word of Hashem my God, to do anything small or great. This sounds like Bilam is a, is, is a tzaddik. Sounds like he's a tzaddik. Listen, Bilam, uh, Balak, you're sending me people a second time, but you have to understand, I can't do anything. I can't do anything that will go against God. So it sounds like, oh, 
What's the problem? He sounds like a righteous person. What's the, what's the reality here? In essence, what he's telling him, I can't, I can't come, but yet, I didn't give you the reason. Now you came back. I'm telling you that I can't do anything that a God doesn't decree in the world. But who knows what he decreed? Yeah, but he told you last week. Yeah, but that was last week. Maybe God's going to change his mind. Stay here, he tells him. Stay the night here. He says to them, Now, you too, please sit in this place tonight, and I'll know what Hashem will add uh, to, uh, will additionally speak with me. Meaning, maybe Hashem changed his mind. Maybe Hashem changed his mind, but Hashem doesn't change his mind. And even later in the Torah, he says, oh yeah, I got one of the things that Bilam learned from this, is that Hashem doesn't change his mind. He's not a man. But at this point, Bilam thinks that maybe, uh, you know, even though Hashem said, you can't go because they're blessed, then now they came back, so there has to be a reason for it. What's the reason? Chizkuni says, Bilam was such a rasha that he's in essence telling them, listen, last week you came, I told you no, because that's not the will of God. He doesn't allow me to go. Now you came back. I had enough time to think about it. Let me go talk to him again. Because now that I think about it, why did he say you can't curse them because they're a blessed people and tell me not to go? If I can't curse them, why is he even bothering to tell me not to go? Ah, God knows that my curse will work despite it being against his will. And that's why he tells me not, go, not to go. In essence, God is scared of me. That's how much of a rasha Bilam was. He thinks that God is scared of him. So let me talk to him and compromise with him. We'll come up with a compromise. That's how deluded a person can be. Hashem can give them gifts and instead of that person recognizing the gifts they spit on the gift they ignore the gift they say no it was me oh yeah so you're telling me that you are the one that uh, decided you're going to be really rich yeah what do you mean i uh started the product i got the customers oh you're the one that won the lawsuit that was not winnable yeah sure what do you mean i had a good lawyer i paid a uh, hundred thousand dollars two hundred thousand dollars in lawyers oh so the same lawyers that told you you cannot win the case they actually won the case and you think that's from the lawyers you don't think that's from hashem well yeah well i'm, I'm what, what's wrong with that well what did you do to win the case what did you do they told you, you can't win the case they told you that the case is lost the best case scenario is maybe there's going to be a compromise in reality what ended up happening is you won every single thing you want it in different states you want it in different countries you end up end up getting a bigger winner than your lawyers even imagined what what did you do oh well you know when i thought i was gonna lose i did as many mitzvot as possible to help as many people do tshuva i learned as much Torah as i could oh so that's what you did it's not that the lawyers got better it's not that the law changed is that you did mitzvot you that hashem likes and what are you doing now that you won the case oh now i'm uh you know now i'm going on vacation oh 
So after HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave you what you want, in a miraculous way, what are you doing? You're not doing the same exact thing that earned you what you got in the first place. Why? Because you forgot that He gave it to you. You figure, listen, we won, good, I did what I did, Hashem did what He did, and uh, you know, we're doing business. Oh, so you think that's how it works? You think that you could do business with Hashem? That you do mitzvot, He gives you the money right now? Which rabbi told you that? Because there's a lot of people out there that call themselves rabbis and they sell Judaism. Tell them, listen, if you keep Shabbat, you're going to have money. You protect this, you'll have money. You give that, you'll have money. You do this, you'll get married. You do this, you'll get... Now, although HaKadosh Baruch Hu does promise salvation to those that do His will, that's not the way Judaism is supposed to be. You're not supposed to serve Hashem that way. In fact, when you serve Hashem in that way, where you think that if you do this and you'll get something back, that leads to a lot of problems. First and foremost, it leads to the problem we just said, which is as soon as the person gets what they want, they win the trial, they, they, they get the job, they find the spouse, they get the kid, guess what? They stop doing those very same good things that Hashem wants them to do, that earned them that good thing. They stop. Why? Because they figure, listen, that was the transaction. I kept Shabbat. I gave tzedakah. I helped people do tshuva. I got what I want. I'm finished. No, that's not the will of Hashem. Hashem is in essence gave you a tool. The reason why He gave you what you wanted is not to stop you from doing what, he, what you're doing. It's to encourage you to keep going because there's more that's going to come. But instead of doing what you did to keep it working, to keep it growing, you went elsewhere. You did something else. You're going further from Hashem. And then what happens? Tragedy. All of a sudden, something is discovered. All of a sudden, they don't need you at the company anymore. All of a sudden, the biggest client leaves. All of a sudden, the the, the spouse doesn't want to be married anymore. All of a sudden, there's sickness. All of a sudden, there's problems. And the person says, well, what happened? What? I kept Shabbat. I did everything. Why is Hashem doing this to me? No, 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 you did this to yourself. You were doing good and doing the will of Hashem. Hashem was giving you good stuff to give you encouragement to keep growing because he, it's like a, it's like a lavdid, but it's like a donkey with a carrot leading them to go to the right direction. He gave you what you wanted for now because it's a temporary encouragement, not a payment, encouragement to keep going in the right direction. But you've already failed. The second you got what you want, you stopped doing what HaKadosh Baruch Hu commanded you. He commanded you to do those things. He commanded you to give tzedakah. He commanded you to keep Shabbat. He commanded you to keep, to keep uh, uh, the Torah and the mitzvot. It's not a suggestion. And it's not even because you're going to get what you're going to get. He just gave you what you wanted in order to entice you to keep going. But if you were taught Judaism in an upside-down fashion. You were taught that if I do this, he's going to give me this, and then I'm finished, as if Hashem is doing business with you. No, no. Hashem commanded you to do it even if you get nothing. And that's the problem with selling Judaism. When you sell Judaism, you're in essence telling people that their relationship with Hashem is temporary. It's based on something. And the Mishnah in Masechet Avot says any, any relationship that's based on something, like that you're going to get some type of interest, is not going to last. It's not going to last. Even your relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, if you're keeping mitzvot only because you want Hashem to give you money, a spouse, 
kids, uh, health, whatever it is, that relationship is temporary. A relationship that's permanent is you do it because Hashem commanded you to do it. It's an obligation to do it. And guess what? When you start that way, eventually you'll fall in love with Hashem. And you'll want to do it. While also always reminding yourself that even if you have a bad day and you don't want to do it anymore, you're still obligated to do it. Not because you're going to get a reward. All of those different things that you get along the way, that's just the Kadosh Baruch who's showing you, I'm watching you, I'm trying to help you out, get more, get this way, get that way. So Bil'am, Bil'am Rasha, instead of seeing the relationship that he had with a Kadosh Baruch Hu as a gift, he saw it as he is higher, even than his own creator in a certain aspect, where he hasn't changed his mind. He has his mind targeted. He wants to kill Am Yisrael. Hashem says you can't curse them. Bilam says maybe Hashem changed his mind. Why would he change his mind? Because technically, if I couldn't curse them, why did he tell me not to go? Why did he tell me not to go? He rationalized things. He rationalized things. Just like the heretics rationalized things. They rationalized that Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, they sinned because Hashem wanted them to sin because that's what brought people to the world as if Hashem couldn't bring people to the world without the sin or that God needs you because he created you as if he couldn't create you and wouldn't create you had he had no need and all types of other mumbo jumbo that people have or he won't punish you why because he's the one that gave you the desire if he didn't want you to do it he wouldn't give you the desire these are the rationalizations of the philosophers that are anti-God while pretending to be religious and even pretending to be a prophet, a holy one. So here we see that Bil'am Rasha is rationalizing his dominance over his creator in a certain aspect. And after he leaves and he goes with them, HaKadosh Baruch makes sure that he knows that he's not happy with them. First and foremost, HaKadosh Baruch Hu designs it in such a way that there are two young men with Bil'am. Why two young men? Says the Chizkuni that HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted to make sure that there are two people with Bil'am. So when his donkey starts talking, his donkey starts acting in strange ways, Bil'am doesn't say, oh no, it's this, this donkey is crazy. Why? Because there's other people watching. Donkey's not crazy. Hashem opened its mouth, it's talking. Donkey's doing donkey's not crazy. You're crazy, maybe. Why two? Allah says you have to have two witnesses. Two witnesses. Two witnesses for what? To vouch for the donkey. To vouch for the donkey. And Akadosh Bahu in essence is telling him, I told you don't go, don't go with them. Meaning. Don't go with the mind, the mindset to do what they want you to do. Don't go with them. You said, yeah, but I can go with them. Right? I can go with them. Now the Chachamim say the word with, in English it's only one word. In Hebrew you could say with in a couple of ways. In the verses it says that... uh, one time the Torah uses the word im, another time it uses the word et. 
and both of them mean the word both of them mean with but when a kadosh Baruch Hu told bilam not to go with them he uses the word imaim imaim meaning don't go with the same evil intentions as them when a kadosh Baruch Hu later on said you can go with them he says go itam that comes from the word et and et means go with them physically you have a financial benefit out of it you have a something to do no problem but not with their evil intentions bilam said okay he's saying go with them even though he said go with them without their evil intentions fine maybe i'll change his mind again because already he's showing me that he is changing already showing me that perhaps uh i can't go so hashem gets angry at him and said no no no. when i said go with them i said don't go with their evil intentions and i see in your mind that you still have the evil intentions you want to go curse my nation and he sends him this uh this angel as an act of mercy just like who sends all of us different things that happen in your life as an act of mercy to get you off the path that you're on you wanted to go buy a house it's the perfect house because it's going to be exactly where you want it to be and what happens somebody else buys the house or the house is no longer available now if you are close to HaKadosh Baruch you have Bitachon Hashem you're saying Baruch Hashem if you're not close to Hashem you say oh why did God do this to me if he wants me to live in this house if he already gave me this house why did he uh, make it not available what's the difference if a person is, for, is, is, is far from Hashem, then they think that everything that Hashem is doing, He's doing it to them. He's doing it to them. If a person is close to Hashem, He's doing it for them. If the house was available and you went on there, that doesn't mean that HaKadosh Baruch wants you to go there. You went after the house, you went after the job, you went after the Shiduch. Doesn't mean that Hashem wants you to do it. Now, what you should pray for is for Hashem to show you the right direction. Why? Because that would be the greatest blessing in the world. Because if He doesn't want you to go in the direction that you're going, He'll stop it. If you have enough siyat Dishmaya, He'll stop it. All of a sudden, the house is not available. All of a sudden, the shiduch is not interested. All of a sudden, the job fires you or doesn't want to hire you. You're saying, oh, why did God do it to me? HaKadosh Baruch Hu is saying, I'm doing it for you. Why? Because what you were about to do was not for your interest. Because I already see the future. And that house wasn't going to be good for you. That relationship wasn't going to be good for you. That client wasn't going to be good for you. You think that getting that million dollar client was going to be a good thing for you. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, I know that client. He's a litigious client. He was going to give you a million dollars in profits in the beginning and then sue you for 10 million and you were going to lose. So rather than you lose 10 times what you make, and years of your life simply I didn't give you the client rather than you move into that house that you think is the greatest house the best house all of the all the wonderful things Hashem says that house is part of a community I'm about to give them some serious structural problems the city is going to have to force each one of them to restructure the roofs restructure the foundation restructure something you're gonna go into a monster a monster that's gonna consume your life and your bank account so instead of allowing you to go into this house simply i made the guy not want to sell it to you anymore and the guy that's going to buy it deserves for all those problems to come to him 
Oh, what about the shidduch? You don't want to be get married? Yeah, once you get married, just not to her, not to him. Why? Because those people, they're not loyal. Or they're not going to live for long. I want you to live for a long time with the same relationship. That person is not going to live for a long time. They already have their uh, five years left of their life. Or they're simply an adulterer. They're going to cheat on you. They're going to lie to you. They're stingy. They're arrogant. They're horrible people. You deserve better. Why? Because you've done tshuva. You've sanctified yourself. And you deserve better. So although you think that I'm taking away the shidduch, you think I'm taking away the house, you think I'm taking away the money. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, I'm doing all of that for you, not to you. For you. So here we see, Rabotai, that Bil'am Rasha with all of his connection to Hashem doesn't get the message so Hashem sends him a special message he sends him an angel that's going to get in his way he still doesn't get the message Hashem opens the mouth of the donkey and the donkey tells him outright the donkey tells him outright what he needs to hear initially the donkey gets hit and then eventually the donkey talks why are you hitting me why are you hitting me? To show us the Rabotai, the rebuke that the donkey gave to Bilam is a proof that if it's true, doesn't matter where it's coming from. It's coming from an old rabbi, a young rabbi, your friend, your wife, your cousin. If it's true, it's true. You have to listen to it. If Hashem sends you a message, pay attention. Even if it comes from a donkey. Hashem opened the mouth of the donkey and the donkey says, Why did you hit me? What have I done that you've struck me these shalosh regalim, these three times? Rashi says, Why did he call it shalosh regalim? Why not shalosh pe'amim? Why did he say shalosh regalim when each time is pe'amim? Because the donkey was telling him, why'd you hit me? All I'm trying to do is get you not to go, to go curse the nation that observes the Torah and its three holidays. Shalosh Regalim. Because you can't win. You're going to get destroyed as a result. So Bilam thinks she's making fun of him. The donkey's making fun of him. And the donkey says to Bilam, am I not your she-donkey upon you you have ridden me from your inception? Meaning, I'm your wife. You've been writing me. You've been intimate with me for all of these years. Did I ever do anything? Where the Pasuk says, literally, it says, that the donkey says, Am I not your she-donkey upon you, whom you have ridden from your inception until this day? Now, uh, have I ever accustomed to do uh, such to you? Meaning, did I ever do anything uh, evil to you? What is this, uh, did I ever put you in danger of any kind? What is this? What does it really mean? The Gemara in Masechet uh, Sanhedrin, Dafbet Amud Aleph, says that there are different diunim, different judgments. The time of the Sanhedrin, 
different cases would have different number of judges. Three judges or uh, was, was the minimum. And it says that if a beast that sodomizes a person or a beast that is sodomized by a person is judged by a court of 23. As it says, and you shall kill the woman and the animal. And also says the animal shall be killed. It says that in essence, if a man is, commits bestiality with an animal, there is a death penalty there, and the, uh, the judgment is uh, delivered by the uh, 23 judges. But here we learn that bestiality is forbidden. The donkey is saying to Bilam, you're saying that I'm going against you. You're saying that I'm putting you in danger. Who put who in danger? You've been the one that's sodomizing me all this time. Do you ever see me crying about it? You're the one that's committing the sin. You're the one that's putting both of us at risk. God's going to kill both of us because of your bestiality. How could you blame me for something that you're doing? And just like you are the one that's guilty throughout all of these years, you're guilty now too. The conclusion is, if a person pays attention to all of the different messages that HaKadosh Baruch Hu sends him, they don't need the donkey to speak. Because HaKadosh Baruch Hu speaks to each and every single one of us through our lives, through the different things that happen in our life. When you do the right thing, and according to the Torah, HaKadosh Baruch Hu will give you certain tools to continue growing, but will also give you tests to see simply where you stand. Are you doing what you're supposed to be doing because you're getting a reward for it, or did you get the point that you were supposed to do it regardless of whether you get the reward or not? Did you finally develop some real bitachon in Hashem? Or you're going to have bitachon in Hashem as long as He gives you everything you want. You love Him only if He gives you what you want. Because if you learn Torah the right way, the first and foremost, you have to understand that HaKadosh Baruch obligates us to follow the Torah. Both Jews and Gentiles have to follow different parts of the Torah. The Jews have to follow the entire Torah that's pertaining to the Jewish people, 613 commandments plus the seven rabbinical mitzvot. And the Gentiles have to follow the seven Noahide laws and all of the moral laws that are based on logic, honoring their parents, and so on. Are you following it because you're expecting Hashem to give you something or because you know that He's your God? And every single breath that comes out or into your mouth is thanks to him and not to you. Now, if a person bought into the Torah in a good way, their emunah and bitachon in Hashem will never be shaken. It'll grow despite the tests. And any time that they find themselves getting weaker, they'll use that opportunity to get even stronger. Any time they're being tested, they'll find a way to connect to Hashem through that difficulty, through that test. Because their relationship 
with Hashem is irreplaceable. A person that bought into Judaism, that bought into the Torah, because of something, because he wants honor, he wants money, he wants a girl, he wants this, he wants that, he thinks he's entitled to this, he thinks he's entitled to that, that relationship was temporary from the start. And it's only a matter of time before somebody convinces him that God needs you. It's only a matter of time before someone convinces him that he doesn't need to keep everything. It's only a matter of time before he rationalizes things that no normal human being should ever even think of. It's important for a person to know that you can be the Talmud of Avraham Avinu or the Talmud of Bilam. Says the Mishnah in Avot. And we'll finalize with this. That whoever is following the three traits are the disciples of Avraham and whoever has three different traits is one of the disciples of Bilam Rasha. This is the Mishnah in Avot, uh, the, um, the, the fifth chapter, 22nd Mishnah. Those who have a good eye, a humble spirit, and an undemanding soul are the disciples of our forefather Avram. You have a good eye. You're not just looking at a good eye for yourself. You're happy that other people got married. You're happy that other people succeeded. You're even willing to help them succeed. You're good at something, but you see somebody else coming up. They ask you for advice. You help them. You help them. Why? Why not? You have somebody to introduce them. They, they need to get married. You help them. Why not? Not because of money. Not because of any interest. Simply because you want people to succeed. You want blessing to be shared among other people. The more Torah you want, the more you want to help people. Why? Because you realize how great it is and also how great the obligation is and how big the consequences are for not following it, both in this world and the next. So you have that good eye makes you want to help other people. That good eye makes you run away from Lashonara, makes you run away from speaking bad about uh, you know people that are innocent, they're not heretics. Okay, so maybe you don't get along. Okay, so maybe you're not on the same page. But there's no reason for you to say Lashonara about people. There's no reason for you to want bad for people. Oh, no, no. Don't go there. Why not? Why not? Yeah, because, you know, she's not really, he's not really. Why? Why? Why do you want to ruin it for, for, for this person? For what? What do you get out of it? Have a good eye. Have a good eye. And then maybe you'll have a chance to be a Talmid or Talmida of Avraham Avinu. A humble spirit. What's a humble spirit? A person that simply knows that everything, en od milvado, there's nothing else but a Kadosh Baruch Hu. All of what I have is because of Hashem. Money, wife, kids, uh, health, uh, whatever it is you have in your life, it's all because of Hashem. Nothing is due to you. Nothing. Nothing is due to you. Yeah, but what about my effort? Who gave you the power to have the effort? Who gave you the power to be able to have it? There's plenty of people that don't wake up in the morning. The reality is that a person that serves Hashem, through holiness, thanks Hashem for having the opportunity to serve Hashem. Humility is a must. Is a must because the more humble a person is, the more real their connection with HaKadosh Baruch Hu is. And an undemanding soul. What's an undemanding soul? I don't want anything from Hashem. I just want an opportunity to serve Him. He doesn't owe me anything. That mentality may sound foreign to some people because... They were taught that Hashem owes them everything. And that's the reason why they abandon Hashem because if Hashem doesn't pay them what they think He owes them, they leave them. 
You want to be a Talmud of Avraham Avinu? Undemanding soul. Don't ask for anything specific. Don't ask for that girl, that amount of money, that house. No, don't ask. Ask Hashem, do, the, do what is best for me. Do what is best for me. Please, Hashem, help me with whatever is best for me. If she's the best for me, give me her. If he's the best for me, give me him. If that's the best for me, give me What's it? Hashem, all I want is please give me what's best for me. Don't give me tests that I can't handle. Whatever is best for me, bring my way. Make whatever the answer is clear to me. Because I'm nothing. I don't know. I don't know nothing. All I know is what you, you know, if you tell me clearly, show me clearly where to go, I'll go. Don't give me nothing. Don't even give me reward. Just show me what you want me to do and I'll do it. You're giving me an opportunity to serve you? Baruch Hashem. But then there are unfortunately people that barely do anything for the sake of Hashem and His name and His Torah and they ask Hashem for a whole list of things. Oh, I want this, I want this, I want this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hashem has uh, said He's going to give me. If I uh, give staka, if I give this, I'm going to get this. Ooh, well, Hashem works for you. Hashem works for you. What is it? You want to be a Talmud of Abraham Avinu? Do good for the sake of good because it's good to do good because God is good and He's the ultimate source of good and defines good. And if you want to emulate your Father in Heaven, you would be excited for the sake of being able to do the same thing He does, which is good. On the other hand, you want to be the boss? Or at least pretend you are. Be like Bilam. What's Bilam? Ein ra'a. Ruach kvoa v'nefesh rechava. Elu talmidav shel Bilam arasha. Evil eye, arrogant spirit, and a greedy soul. These are the disciples of the wicked Bilam. What's Ein ra'a? You're not happy for anybody. You see she got married? <clears throat> you see he got married? <clears throat> you have nothing good to say. Who knows how long they're going to be together. You know, I don't know if they're such a good match. You ever meet those people? They're not happy for anybody? Where are they having the wedding? Where did they get so much money? Why are they spending so much money? Why did they move there? Why are you just happy for them? Why don't you say, Mabruk? Enjoy. You have it, like it? Fine, go. Why aren't you happy for them? Why? Every time somebody gets uh, gets something that you want, you always find a reason to, uh, you're not happy for them. Why? Why are you such an evil eye? Why are you counting other people's money, other people's blessing? Why don't you just be happy for them? Why don't you be happy for them? You got a new car, you got a new house, you got a new this, you got a new... Why aren't you happy for them? Oh, because it didn't happen to you. Oh, how come Hashem sent him this and he didn't give me? I don't know, maybe he doesn't want to give it to you. Do you ever think of that? Why not? I, I keep mitzvot. Okay, you keep mitzvot. So what? Hashem doesn't want to give it. He doesn't owe you anything. What does that have anything to do with not being happy for him getting it? Why do you have to only be happy if it's you and not other people? Why aren't you as happy for other people as you are for yourself? Somebody complimented a Rosh Yeshiva to one of the Gedolei Ador in the previous generation. He said, oh, this rabbi, every time he walks into his yeshiva, he dances because he sees 500 bachurim learning. He's excited. The Gdol Adol says, can you please ask that rabbi, that Rosh Yeshiva, that dances when he sees his 500 bachurim learning? Is he just as excited when he goes to the next door yeshiva 
that is not his yeshiva and he sees 500 bachurim learning? Or he's only excited when it's his bachurim? Are you only excited when it's your bachurim that are learning? Are you only excited when it's your house that's profiting? Are you only excited and happy when it's you? Or are you happy when you see other people succeed? Because if you're only happy when it's you, that's evil eye. That's evil eye. If you're not as excited for your brother, for your sister, not biologically, I'm Israel, you're not as excited for other people being happy, that in itself is not only evil eye, that is forsaking the mitzvah, loving your brother like you love yourself. Having a good eye means you love, you want him to be happy. You want him to succeed. You want her to be happy. You want her to succeed. Even if you don't like them, doesn't make a difference. They're a Kadosh Bahu's child. Why aren't you happy for them? Why not? Second, a person that's arrogant. Simple. They think they're better than everybody else. They think that they're better than everybody else. The world owes them. I'm better this, I'm better that. This is a delusional person. But nonetheless, a person that could literally convince themselves that the destruction of their own family is a good thing. Why? They don't want to listen to anybody but themselves. Even their spouse, even their kids, even the rabbi, even the rabbinit, even the friends, nobody. You want to do whatever they want. The Gemara says an arrogant person will get to a point where even his own family will hate him. And even that won't change him. Why? Arrogance is a very, very serious disease that only the strongest Musar maybe can break it. In many cases, even strong Musar is not enough. A Kadosh Baruch hand has to get involved. He has to break him. When a Kadosh Baruch gives somebody a break, Everybody becomes humble. All of a sudden, he realizes that he's nothing. All of a sudden, she realizes she's nothing. Yesterday, she was walking around like some zona, thinking that she's the most beautiful and she needs to flaunt her looks. Today, she can't walk with neither one of her legs. And her arms are barely moving. All of a sudden, she wants to be a tzaddika. What happened? What happened, little tzaddika? What happened? Oh, Hashem humbled you. You could have humbled yourself. Could have humbled yourself. If you would have watched, Hashem took back his millions, you would have humbled yourself. Why go through the same tragedy I went through? Could have humbled yourself. Last but not least, the person that wants to be the disciple of Bil'am Rasha is a greedy soul. Everything is mine. Mentality to the extent where they only do mitzvot and the will of Hashem if they see a profit out of it. Oh, the rabbi said, what? What mitzvah is that? What do I get if I do this mitzvah? What do I get if I do that mitzvah? What do I get if I give this? What do I get if I get that? Oh, that's the reason why you're doing it? Or you think Hashem owes you something? Oh, and if He doesn't give it to you, you're going to what? Stop doing it? Okay. You call Bilam Rabbi. Rabbi Bilam. Why? That's your rabbi. You want to be the Talmud of Avraham Avinu? Exact opposite. I do mitzvot because it's good to do good for the ultimate source of good that is a Kadosh Baruch Hu. Let us all learn 
from Bil'am, from Balak, of what the will of Hashem is and what it isn't. Let us not repeat their mistakes. Not today, not tomorrow, not ever. And if we ever do fall, remind ourselves, which rabbi did we follow? Avraham Avinu or Bilam? And you'll see that if you followed Avraham, you've already started winning in this world. If you followed Bilam, the loss and tragedy was inevitable. Now, I know it makes sense, but this is why we have to remind ourselves of these things on a regular basis. By reviewing our actions, our lives, how a Kadosh Baruch Hu is talking to us. He may not send you a donkey that's talking to you, but certainly he's sending you a million and a half different experiences in your life that if you would review them, you would see this is outright talking by Hashem. This is Hashem talking to me. This email from this person, this text from that person, this phone call from that person, this table breaking, this fridge not working, the electric this, the house this, all of the things that happen in your life, these are the donkeys talking to you. HaKadosh Baruch is sending us all types of communications. If we simply open our eyes and pay attention, you want to be able to see it clearly? There's two ways. One, learn a lot of Torah. Observe all of the Torah that you know. Your vision will clear up and the world will be to you as clear as day. Or, HaKadosh Baruch Hu will send an angel with a sword to scare the life out of you and force you to see things for what they are. Choose wisely. With that being said, I'm going to have a drink, Bezat Hashem, and you guys can ask the questions that you want, Bezat Hashem. Okay, uh, first question I see is, what is the point of offering a voluntary fast? Uh, when should one offer it? Okay, so this has to do with a person trying to sanctify themselves. Uh, and yes, I see it as many questions before, but that's the first question I saw. Uh, the, um, the, this is all about you know, trying, a person trying to sanctify themselves, trying to serve Hashem, in, uh, in, in such a way that a person is constantly trying to perfect themselves. And one of the ways for a person to perfect themselves is by eliminating their connection to material uh, and trying to connect to the spiritual. Now, the more a person is addicted to food, to money, to, to all of these different things, 
the more they're creating a barrier between them and their higher level of spirituality. So when a person wants to sanctify themselves, of course, they have to observe the Torah, they have to do the mitzvot, they have to give tzedakah, they have to do all of the things the Torah say. And sometimes a person says, this is not enough for me, I want to do even more. So at times a person can uh, eliminate some of their uh, uh, materialism in order to gain more, uh, uh, more spirit, to gain more room for spirituality. So a person, one of the choices is to not eat for a day. Not eating for a day or more, whatever a person can handle. Uh, most people can't handle even a day, but uh, the, uh, this is one of the ways where a person, if that person can learn Torah that entire day and function normally, not just uh, not eat the whole day and uh, lay in bed all day or not be functional. If that's the case, then don't do it. If a person elevated themselves to the point where they could not eat for the whole day and thereby use all of that uh, time and energy to learn Torah and connect to Hashem, pray to Him, and, and, and simply use that day as a pure spirituality day, then uh, fasting is a, uh, could be a very good thing for them. For most people, this is not relevant. This is not uh, relevant for them. Uh, and in fact, for most people, they should do something else, but not, not fasting. Uh, when, a per when should a person do it is, again, number one, if they have spoken to their rabbi and the rabbi knows where they stand and the rabbi says, yes, you are ready, you're able to, you're already doing everything that you have to do and you're uh, already at a, have the capability of doing even more than you have to do, then yes, go take this elective uh, uh, fast, meaning go fast, let's say, every Monday or fast every Thursday or fast every Monday and Thursday, whatever, you know, whatever the person is doing and they can do that. But again, that is so long as the person is, number one, doing all of the basics and even more than the basics already. Number two, they have, you know, their rabbi is in essence encouraging them to do it. He's, he's telling them it's a good thing for them to do because he knows where they stand and this would be good for them. Uh, and number three, that's assuming that uh, they're going to function at full capacity, uh, meaning they'll study even better than what they do when they eat. Uh, but that's again, that's not common. That's not common for most people, especially people that are relatively new to Torah and mitzvot. And by new, I mean anything less than 10 years. So what should other people that are not necessarily ready to fast, what should they do? What should they sacrifice? Really the most, uh, 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 critical thing that a person can sacrifice that's material, that is worth even more than money is their time, their time instead of fasting the whole day and, uh, uh, and, and, and uh, you know, using all that energy for that, simple, study Torah the whole day. Study Torah the whole day. Now, if you tell a person, study Torah the whole day, all of a sudden, I can't do it, I can't do it. Wait, but fasting you can, but you can't study the whole day? Okay, so study, how much do you study per day now? You study two hours, study four hours. Study five hours, study uh, more. So that's the, you know, your time, your time and using that time to learn Torah. So that's the, uh, the number one thing. Second thing is sacrificing materialism is sacrificing money. What are you giving right now? You're giving tzedakah occasionally. You give uh, money whenever you know whenever you remember to. Make it a uh, uh, an obligation, just like you breathe every day, just like you eat every day. Make it an obligation that every time you get money, you take ten percent of it and you give it for the sake of Torah, for the sake of kiruv, on a regular basis. No questions asked. It's literally like. You deduct, uh, you know, expenses out of it. The ten percent is makes the money permissible to you so much so that you don't start using the money until you take out the ten percent, like they did at the Beit Hamikdash. 
You don't eat the crops until you gave that maser, maser rishon, maser sheni, and so on. So you have to give uh, that staka. That's if you can give that on a regular basis. That's a big sacrifice. If you're already giving it on a regular basis, then give more. If you want to do more, give more. Give 15%, give 20%. If you're wealthy, give even more than 20%. But the point is that sacrificing the, uh, the, the, the resources that you have is much, much more valuable than sacrificing food and not eating for a day. Uh, but again, if a person is a Talmud Chacham, a Torah scholar, perhaps doesn't have much money, or whatever they have, is uh, sufficient but it's not enough for them to really make a dent by giving much more and uh, but they want to sanctify themselves then yeah fasting does come in handy at times but uh, many times I've seen young Baalei Tshuva take it on and it ended up causing more damage than good uh, because they simply weren't ready but they decided to and I've had a few uh, young people ask me about should I uh, fast and every time I've told them no I've uh, had people tell me I'm going to fast and I didn't stop them not because I thought it was a good idea, but just simply I knew they're not going to listen to me. So there's no point of me stopping them. Let them learn on their own. And you usually see within a few weeks, maximum two months, they stop and they don't do it anymore. And they learn this is not for them. You have to also know where you stand. Don't uh, don't be overly righteous and think that you are uh, much more than what you are. You don't necessarily think you need to, uh, need to be negative about things, but also realize where you stand. Uh, okay, next question. Let's see. Uh, I see that some of the questions are disappearing. Uh, okay, here we go. Oh no, there's a lot of questions here. All right. Oh. All right. Next question is. Uh, thank you. Okay, here. Reverend is asking if a non-Jew sleeps with a Jew but not married. Is that bad too? What if they stopped and did not make the same mistake again? Uh, assimilation into marriage is not based on uh, whether they actually got legally married or not. That's meaningless. There is no such thing as a legal marriage, uh, according to the Torah, between a Jew and a Gentile. There is no, there, there, there's no such thing. Now, legally, as far as the government, the Torah doesn't care about so if a Jew was intimate with a non-Jew, that is a very, very bad thing. And both of them need to do tshuva. Both of them need to repent, uh, say I'm sorry to Hashem, and uh, you know, do uh, uh, as much as they possibly can to never, ever do that again. Number one is uh, uh, stop the relationship immediately. Two, make sure to never do it again. Three, say I'm sorry to Hashem as, as much as possible. And if they were ever tested again, not to fail the test. And also, uh, I would recommend for them to try to encourage other people that they know, or even if they don't know them, uh, to also get out of those types of relationships by sharing these different lectures that we discuss it, uh, whether it's the Tikkun Abrit film, or it's the other lectures that we have to talk about immorality and intermarriage, to try to encourage other people to also get out of these relationships. Because them succeeding and getting other people to stop those relationships will go to their merit and in essence will be their rectification of the time that they made that mistake. Uh, and again, trying is, uh, to, to help other people is what Hashem asks for, not succeeding. Succeeding is in His hands. 
You can try by supporting, you can try by sharing, you can try by speaking, you can try in a lot of different ways to help people. Success is in the hands of Hashem. But if a person tries, already he or she are doing what they're supposed to be doing uh, to show that they really do have remorse on over what they did and they are very serious about never repeating it again and also bringing more good and holiness to the world. Um, next question is, uh, how is an anti-Semite supposed to tell a Jewish woman the things he's not allowed to? I have no sound. If Rav Ruben answers, I'll have to listen later. Just don't have headphones. I'm sure that the video is playing fine. Okay. How is an anti-Semite supposed to tell a Jewish woman the things he's not allowed to? An anti-Semite shouldn't talk to a Jewish woman, period. An uh, anti-Semite should go and do tshuva and realize how stupid he or she is for hating the uh, Hashem's you know, chosen people. First, they need to be righteous with Hashem and uh, understand that you cannot be righteous with Hashem while you hate his kids. It's like somebody saying, I love you after they beat up your kid. Or I love you after they insult your children nonstop. Or they tell you, listen, I love you, but I hate all of your kids. Obviously, the person will tell you, if you loved me, you would love my kids. There's no such thing as loving me and hating my kids. The two are not, uh, uh, it's not, it's not possible. Uh, next, uh, how large were the giants? And did they have souls like a human? Uh, yeah, the, the, the giants were enormous. Uh, there were different sizes. There was the Nephilim, there was the Anakim. Uh, there were different types of giants. There was Adam Rishon that was enormous himself. Uh, but Hashem uh, shrunk him after the sin. But nonetheless, he was still much, much bigger than what uh, we could imagine. There's a Gemara that says that one of the Chachamim went to Me'arat uh, the cave of Me'achpelah, to take measurements of the uh, of the different graves, and uh, this is obviously a couple thousand years almost after uh, you know Adam Rishon, after Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, uh, and all, and their wives were buried there. And this Chacham went to Marat Machpelah. He was obviously holy, so Hashem showed him certain things there. And the first thing that he saw was Eliezer, Eliezer, Eved Avraham, Eliezer, the servant of Hashem. That's one of uh, ten people that never died. He is the Shomer. He is the guard of the cave of Machpelah and specifically the section of, of the Avot, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. And uh, he asks the Chacham, what, what can I do for you? He says, I want to measure the graves. Where, where is, can I go to Avram? He says, hold on a second. Avram is with uh, Sarah. He, uh, they're, they're together right now. I have to go ask him for permission. He even said, she's, uh, he's sitting on her lap and she's playing with his hair. What that means... I don't know, you, uh, you know as, a, as much as I do, this is obviously showing this is spirituality. But nonetheless, there's things that you can see. There are things that are happening. There's a, uh, uh, the, the husband and the wife are uh, not, uh, they don't go to do two different uh, worlds after they leave this world. If your husband and wife are in this world and the next world, Avraham is still with Sarah. And every day, there's a certain time of day that Avraham sees Sarah. Just like Be'ezrat Hashem, every day, the uh, uh, husband's going to see his wife. So uh, Avram and Sarah are in Marat uh, HaMachpelah and uh, he needs to get permission. So he gets permission, he gets the measurements of the different Avot, then he wants to go see the, uh, the grave of uh, Adam Rishon. 
who's also in Marat HaMachpelah. Hashem buried him there, standing up because it was so big. So, uh, but it, uh, it told him, uh, Eliezer said, no, no, you don't have permission for that. Avram says, no more, you've done enough. So he had to leave, and he says, on the way out, on the way out of the Marat HaMachpelah, this is a Gemara Beforeshit, it's not like uh, some fairy tale I'm creating for you guys, Gemara Beforeshit. Uh, on the way out, he says, I saw the, uh, the, um, uh, the heel, the heel of, uh, of Adam Rishon. He saw the heel of Adam Rishon, and said, it's, it's more shiny than the sun. The heel of Adam Rishon is more shiny than the sun. Meaning, first of all, it's huge. It's enormous as far as size, if that's all he saw. Second, it's, it shows you the holiness of Adam Rishon. So now, Adam Rishon was enormous, even after Hashem shrunk him from his, you know, uh, the size that he was originally. Second thing is, is that uh, the, uh, the giants were different sizes. One of the things that I can tell you is that Og was the smallest of the giants in the generation of Noah. He's the only giant that survived. And since he could not uh, fit in the uh, in the ark of Noah, Hashem told Noah to allow Og to sit on top of the uh, uh, of the of the uh, ark, and uh, literally was just enough to fit him. That's how big he was. If you want to know the exact measurements of the ark of the Tevat Noah, it's in the Tanakh. It's approximately, uh, I think, if, if off the top of my head, I believe it's about a, a football field and a half, something like that. Uh, so the ark was huge, and uh, and Og was big enough to uh, to uh, to sit on it and barely fit, and uh, that's uh, how he survived the uh, uh, the flood. And he was the smallest of all the giants. So meaning that the Nephilim were much much bigger than him, much much bigger than him. The uh, the, the uh, Gemara says uh, that the uh, the tallest pine trees were like grass to them they were like grass to them so you could just imagine when you walk on grass the relation uh, of grass to to your foot especially if you're a tall person so just imagine the tallest tree is like grass to you so that and then you could do the assessment of what that is when og tried to kill uh moshe rabenu uh he picked up uh, he didn't just try to kill moshe rabenu he tried to kill all of am israel by picking up a mountain and Hashem miraculously made an uh, army of, uh, of uh, I believe it was termites, go through the mountain and break the mountain in half, and all of that fell on his head, fell on Og's head, after Moshe Rabbeinu jumped ten amot in the air. The Gemara says that uh, Moshe Rabbeinu himself was ten amot. Ten amot is about 20 feet tall. Okay? Ten am- his, his staff was also ten amot, also 20 feet tall. And he was strong. He was able to jump in the air 10 amot. He was able to jump 20 feet. And says the Gemara says that Moshe Rabbeinu, to fight Og, he jumped 10 amot with his staff 10 amot. Meaning that he went up 60 feet in the air. And he only reached the, uh, the, uh, um, the, the heel, not the heel, the bone that's uh, on top of your foot. You know where your, where your bottom of your foot is? Is that little bone, I don't know what it's called, that sticks out. For most people, it sticks out. Uh, unless your feet are swollen, then you have just pretty much a bunch of meat. Either way, you, uh, that bone is what the staff, the top of the staff hit. And that was enough to make uh, Og 
shake and the mountain to break on top of his head and he died. So the size of Og was enormous. And even in the Torah, when it says the size of Og was uh, uh, the size of his bed, you had a steel bed, was uh, nine amot, but the nine amot based on humans, meaning that each ama was the size of a human being. And what human being? Perhaps it would be one of the Levim, that each one of the Levim, the Gemara says, was a, I think it's Masechet, uh, I think it's Masechet Sota, says that each one of the Levim had to be at least 10 amot tall. Not only Moshe Rabbeinu was 10 amot, 20 feet tall. Uh, all of the Levim had to be that tall uh, because the in order for them to travel with the Mishkan, with the... Uh, uh, and, and, and hold it in such a fashion, they had to be that tall, or else the, uh, the Arona Kodesh, uh, it wasn't, uh, the poles were in the middle of the, uh, let's say, for example, you have, this is the Arona Kodesh, okay, let's say this is the Arona Kodesh, okay, now the, the poles, let's just do it this way, let's say the, this is the Arona Kodesh, the poles weren't on the bottom, the poles were here, we're in the middle. So when if if the uh, if the Levim that were carrying the Arona Kodesh were anything less than uh, ten amot tall, then the bottom of it would hit the floor because they had to carry it on their shoulder. Even though they didn't really have to carry it, it was floating in the air. Still, it had to look like they're carrying it. So the Gemara says that all of the Levim were as tall as Moshe Rabbeinu, meaning that it wasn't just the giants that were giants according to us, but even People of Am Yisrael were giants according to us, but there were giants that were much, much bigger than the Levim. Much, much bigger than the Levim. So, uh, but as far as uh, sizes, they come in all different shapes and sizes. A lot of interesting things, Baruch Hashem. Uh, next question. Is it possible for Bil'am to be here in a Gilgul or, or Gehazi? Uh, well, I mean, it says that uh, Bil'am and Gehazi uh, and Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin, Perek Chelek, says that uh, Bil'am and Gehazi are some of the people that have no share of the world to come, and they are in uh, the seventh chamber of Gehenom. And in fact, Bil'am uh, was, uh, the Gemara says in Masechet Abu Dazara, uh, was brought up in a seance by Onkelos before he, uh, before he converted to Judaism, and uh, he told him that he is in the seventh level of Genom in Tzoar Tachat, in a, uh, a boiling, fe- a boiling uh, um, semen. Uh, so, uh, so he is a, uh, Bilam is in the seventh level of Genom, and there's no uh, way for him to be here as a Gidgul. No. Um, let's see. How can a person experience the battle against in- internal Amalek, like battles of uh, King David? Uh, I have several lectures about exactly that question. I highly recommend you watch those lectures. Just go on to my page, type the word Amalek, and you'll see, are you Amalek? Is one of the lectures, and there's also other ones, and it'll give you the details that you're looking for. I do not exist. Okay. I don't exist. I don't exist either. Uh, okay, next question. I believe there is a Gemara that states Mashiach can't come until all the neshamot in the goof come to the world. Since you receive a new neshama after immersion in a kosher conversion, is this what the Gemara meant? 
are we waiting for the true converts uh, to go through the conversions uh, for Mashiach to come? Uh, thank you for taking the time. Yes, that is actually one of the things that has to happen where these neshamot, there are a certain amount of neshamot in his heavenly body called goof, and they have to come to the world. Uh, one of the ways that these neshamot have to come to the world is through the righteous converts. Yes, uh, hence the reason why it's a very big mitzvah to help people uh, that are righteous convert. Unfortunately, it's very difficult to find righteous people to convert. It's easy to find people to convert like sand. But righteous people to convert is much more difficult because many people want to convert uh, for the wrong reasons or they simply don't even know what, why they want to convert. I mean, some people say, I'm Jewish in my heart and I feel like uh, you know I should be a Jew, but they don't know anything about Judaism. Uh, they just want to live in Israel or they just want to go to synagogue, but they have no idea what it entails. And it's uh, unfortunately many times these people uh, should not convert. Uh, so it's a uh, it's it's very important to help righteous converts. Uh, that's one of the ways that those neshamot will come to the world. Another way that those neshamot will come to the world is when uh, parents uh, have uh, uh, bring children to the world. That's why there's a very special mitzvah of pulbu. Uh, so whether the parents are converts or the parents are natural born Jews doesn't make a difference if they if they follow the uh, the details that we talk about in the uh, new series called Jewish intimacy. They'll be able to bring holy neshamot into the world. Uh, and uh, that's another, another uh, thing. And the third thing also is even when a uh, person is not able to have kids, not able to have kids uh, for different reasons, whether it be age or whatever it is, if they fulfill what the Geret HaKodesh and the Chachamim said about uh, holy intimacy, uh, even that action that doesn't actually yield kids will bring those neshamot to the world. We'll bring those neshamot to the world. And there's also other things that Kabbalah talks about, uh, you know, but the point is, is that there are different things that can be done to bring holy neshamot to the world. Righteous converts are certainly one of them. And that's, uh, that's why Kadosh Baruch Hu is, a, uh, is waiting, waiting for certain people to convert, and, uh, but also at the same time, why the Yetzirah will do everything possible to discourage a righteous convert from converting. Hence the reason why I always give the warning to people that I'm uh, helping with conversion, that the closer they get to the actual conversion, the more life is going to go upside down for them, the more there's going to be uh, tension, uh, tests, uh, and outright unusual things. Uh, pretty much, you know, there's no boundaries to how unusual certain things can be. Uh, and uh, in the, from the natural and the unnatural world. And I've seen, Baal Hashem, lots of interesting things in my life uh, that I haven't discussed in lectures, not just my own personal life, uh, but from students of different things, people that are converting. And by far, the most unusual things happen to people that are in the process of conversion when they are righteous. And it doesn't, usually, it doesn't end there. Sometimes it's even after also, and usually it is after, but uh, Baal Hashem is a lot more blessing after they convert. Uh, before they convert, there's a lot of difficulties, a lot of difficulties. Uh, the more righteous they are, the more the difficulties are. And a, a person that is a uh, uh, tough and, and committed to Hashem succeeds. It is a great blessing, great blessing to the world that such an Hashemah came down. Next, uh, uh, I always voluntary fast up to five days sometimes. If you're serving Hashem during that time, it's good. If you're not serving Hashem during that time, then it's just a diet. 
no, 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 I'm not trying to disrespect you, but again, the, the whole fast uh, is, is supposed to be for the sake of serving Hashem, not just by not eating, but by rather using that time and energy to serve Hashem by learning Torah, doing mitzvot, doing chesed, and so on. Um, next, in Baruch HaMapir, we say to be saved from the Yetzirah Tov and the Yetzirah. Uh, in Berkot HaShachar, we switch the uh, order. Why not just keep uh, the uh, same uh, order? Uh, say from the Yetzirah Tov uh, and Yetzirah. Uh, so in the, in the uh, beginning of the day, you ask Hashem to help you not fall for the trap of the Yetzirah Tov, uh, the Yetzirah, because the Yetzirah is going to come to you throughout the whole day in different enticements. It's going to be immodesty. It's going to be uh, opportunity to steal, opportunity to lie, opportunity to do uh, desecrate Hashem's name. Yetzirah is attacking you all day. Uh, but after you've overcome it, a, uh, the, uh, you know, we don't want uh, the Yetzirah to come and attack us after we did the mitzvah uh, and, and make us think that we are uh, so righteous that uh, we could uh, calm down and not uh, serve Hashem as committedly tomorrow. At the end of the day, you've already, uh, you've already uh, finished your mitzvot for the day, you're ending the day, so the Yetzirah that typically happens to somebody at the end of the day is they feel too proud about how they did, and in essence, they let themselves slide. They say, you know what, since I did so much today, uh, you know, tomorrow, instead of waking up at, uh, I don't know, let's say if they wake up usually at 6 o'clock, you know, tomorrow I'll wake up at 9. Because I did so much today, tomorrow I'll wake up at 9, or at 10, or 11. And uh, because I did so much today, tomorrow, you know, I don't have to push myself as hard. So already, the, the Yetzirah that a person has is different at the end of the day because it's after they review what they've done for the day. They review what they've done for the day. Last but, you know, last but not least is also the Yetzirah that it's at night is the, uh, that comes after the fact. That's a, uh, a person, what they're going to have in their dream. What they're, you know, while they're sleeping, while they're uh, uh, not, uh, uh, you, know, uh, you know, in this world, but nonetheless in this world. And, you know, seed can come out, the results of what they saw during the day, and so on. Are non-Jews allowed to read Sharet Tshuva? Uh, yes, Sharet uh, Tshuva is a uh, Musar book written by Rabbein Yonah of Girondi about 800 years ago. He was a, one of the family members of the Ramban. Uh, I believe he was married to uh, his sister, to the sister of the Ramban. Uh, and uh, Rabbein Yonah of Girondi, uh, he's, that Musar book is one of the greatest uh, ever. Um, and uh, yes, highly recommended. Uh, you know, it's a fantastic book, both for Jews, non-Jews. I mean, I think uh, there is. Uh, it depends on the level of the person, though. If it's the first Musar book, then I would I wouldn't recommend it as the first one. I would go more basics. But if the person has already read several Musar books, then yeah, sure. Uh, Joseph, according to Paschim, if one doesn't have proper kavanah for the first bracha of Amidah, he's not yotzeh. and needs to do it again. Uh, my question is, what is the right intentions to have during uh, this very significant uh, first blessing? Uh, correction, Yosef, uh, there is even Paschim like the Chafetz Chaim that say uh, in his uh, Mishnah Brura, that say that if a person doesn't have the right kavanah in the first three of the blessings of Amidah, he uh, has to go back. Now, Lachai is we don't have to. Uh, we don't paskin like that. We paskin like the Shuchan Aruch. But uh, the point is, is that a person certainly needs to have kavanah. What is kavanah? 
the very, very basic minimum that a person needs to have is simply think about the blessing itself, think about Hashem at that time, and not about other things. Not about your bills, not about the fact that you are late for an appointment, not about, uh, you know, all the things that go into a person's mind, especially when they pray. You know, a person can be, uh, you know, empty-minded. You ask him what's on your mind, they'll say nothing. The second they start praying to Hashem, all of a sudden, everything that ever happened to them in their life, both good and bad, is in their mind. Why? Because that the most uh, important part of having, uh, you know, of, of what a person needs to have in their mind uh, is, is Hashem during the prayer. So a person simply uh, uh, needs to think of a Kadosh Baruch Hu, uh, at all times when he's praying. Uh, that's one. Two is to do the best they can to understand what they're saying. Not just understand the literal meaning of it, but actually the application of it to their life. You know, that, uh, uh, thank you, Hashem, that you love tshuva. Oh, what, what's thank you, Hashem, you love tshuva. What was that? Oh, you allowed me to do tshuva. Thank you, Hashem. If I didn't have to do tshuva, and you're thinking this in your mind, you're not saying this. If I didn't do tshuva, I would have gone to Gehenom. I would have been uh, had a miserable life. I would have got a divorce. I would have had this. I would have had that. You think about it. Oh, thank you, Hashem, for, for, for the different things that you thank Him for. Uh, it's a, uh, or you're blessing Him for. Each one, think of it how it applies to your life. How it applies to your life, how it applies in the past, how it applies in the present, how it can apply in the future. And of course, think of Hashem. Think of Hashem. It's a, uh, one of the things that uh, uh, you could also think, not say, as I've said it in one of the Geret HaRamban uh, um, Shirim that's about prayer. Uh, it's a good recommendation that uh, one of the things that helps a person think about Hashem when they say the name of Hashem is by uh, thinking, when you, when you say Hashem, say Hayahoveveye. But don't say it out loud, just think it in your mind, because you can't break up the prayer. Hayahoveveye, he was, he is, and he will be. Uh, and, uh, and there's obviously some people that do even you know, more significant kavanot. The point is, the basic minimum that all of us should strive for is that at the very least, to clear our mind from everything else and simply think about Hashem and what we're saying. That is the uh, that is what we all need to do. If a person can do even more, of course, can do more. And but this is not the uh, time to uh, to learn that. Uh, there is certainly more that a person could do. Uh, let's see. Is buying term life insurance against the Torah since maybe can be looked as not putting full trust of Hashem? Uh, no, it's not against the Torah. Uh, a person that wants to buy l- uh, term life insurance can buy lerf. T- it's not against the Torah. Uh, you know, to be against the Torah has to be a violation. Is it uh, recommended? Is it uh, uh, a mitzvah? Is it other things? You know, that obviously is up for debate uh, as far as, uh, you know, some people make it seem as if buying insurance is a big mitzvah. In some cases, it is a mitzvah because a person can... Uh, of course, so long as they're not cheating the insurance company and overstating numbers and understating health problems, as long as they're being honest with both parties, uh, you know, then uh, you know, buying uh, term life insurance is perfectly fine uh, and even good for a person to do in order to help his family if he passes away uh, and when he passes away because all of us will die at some point and the expenses of death are very significant. It's not just the burial. There's a lot of other things. And a person that, uh, you know, that has means, that has assets, certainly should do whatever they can 
to help their family when they're not here. But of course, the biggest thing they can do is to help their family when they are here, when they're still in this world. So it's a person should never leave all of their financial uh, uh, issues for only after they die. They need to do as much as possible while they're still alive. Now, as far as the... Uh, uh, the, the issues of insurance, usually the problem is not uh, buying insurance, uh, it's, it's, it's rather how people treat insurance. And unfortunately, there's a lot of scams that uh, I saw people do in the insurance business. It's unfortunately a very, very scandalous business. And uh, I'll tell you guys some things because I honestly don't know when I would ever discuss this. So might as well just tell you now, give you guys a little bit of uh, you know, knowledge about insurance. Insurance is a, is a unique industry because a, it's comprised of liars that look like they're your friends and everybody's lying to each other. Uh, and that's, that's in essence is the, is the reason why insurance is the way it is, is because all parties are lying to each other. When you're talking about health or life insurance, it's very common for everyone to lie. The, uh, you know, the insurance company is uh, typically lying for overstating their ability, their solvency, their safety, their benefits of the actual product itself. The, uh, the customer is typically lying by simply, uh, usually understating uh, the risk that's involved in insuring him or her, their health conditions, their, uh, their, uh, their financial means, how much they have. In reality, they have, let's say, you know, uh, you know a million dollars, but they get insurance for 20 million or 30 million because of this and because of that and because... So a person is very, uh, the more money they have, the more uh, uh, likely they are to lie. Uh, and also the, uh, the, the doctors are very commonly very big partners in the lie because they get a certain benefit in it. So it's important to know that the, the in industry itself is used to lying and therefore everybody suspects each other. Everyone suspects each other. So now there is a part of the industry that's very, very problematic and certainly against the Torah uh, because it's unethical. Uh, which is a called life settlements. Life settlements is uh, when uh, people get uh, uh, old people to buy life insurance that they can't really afford by uh, telling them that they'll you know they'll get somebody else to pay for that life insurance. And their reward will be that they'll get uh, a certain amount of money at a certain time, whether it be during or after the uh, 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 the policy, during or after their life. You know, there's different deals being made. But the point being is, is that that policy that insures, let's say, insures Reuven that's uh, 70 years old, uh, you know, is not really for Reuven. It's if he dies, then, you know, Reuven certainly... Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the insurance company is supposed to pay based on Reuven's life. Uh, but the owner of the policy is some guy, Shimon. Shimon is paying the bill. He's paying the monthly premium. Uh, and he is, uh, in essence, the owner of the, of the policy. And when Reuven dies, the death benefit goes to Shimon. This is certainly a unethical and uh, um, you know a problematic uh, product that you should never ever associate with. Even though I know a lot of insurance brokers that could barely make a living uh, love this uh, opportunity because it pays a lot of money, a lot of commissions. 
but it's a very problematic product and I can assure you that uh, the uh, uh, there are certainly going to be certain people that go to jail for it and there's certainly going to be uh, people that will go to Gainom for it. Uh, why? Because the whole point of the insurance policy and if anyone that looks at insurance policy small print they'll see that the insurance companies are not stupid. They have one building for sales and another building for lawsuits. So they are going to only sell you an insurance if you are uh, um, you have the best interest of the insurer in mind, meaning that the the person that owns the policy has to have a vested interest in the uh, the well being of the, uh, the, the the what's being insured. So, for example, you cannot insure somebody else's building. Why? Because if you are allowed to insure somebody else's building, that if the building goes on fire you uh you get the premium then this would create chaos why because everybody would insure each other's products and then burn everything and get money for it so you have to actually have a vested interest in the survival of what's being insured so when you own an insurance policy on somebody else's life in reality what ends up happening the person ends up uh uh wanting the person to die because that's finally when they're going to get their money back. So they want the person to die. And for that, they're not only going against the insurance company's laws, bylaws, and even possibly state laws, depending on what state you're in, but they're definitely going against the Torah by wanting another person to die for no reason. So this is a very common scam in the insurance industry. There's also scams when it comes to international insurance and uh, disability insurance and all types of insurance. Insurance is a necessary product. It's a good product when you know what you're getting into. But I'm sorry to tell you, the average insurance broker has no concept of what's left or right other than what the premium pays. They don't know very much. Uh, They don't know very much about financials. They don't know very much about what's for the best interest of the client. So if you're going to go into that business, you have to know that first and foremost, the first question you ask about yourself, about each and every single deal is, what is the best interest of the client? Not the best interest of your pocket. If you're only going to look into your pocket, then certainly you're going to make every scam under the sun become kosher at some point or another. So if you look at things based on the interest of the client, you'll have a long and successful career that's going to be full of blessing. Uh, that's number one. Number two even if it's in the best interest of the client is it allowed is it legal is it ethical to do what it is what this is uh and and that's that's another question now if it's allowed and it's ethical then you can look at what's the bottom line as far as what's most profitable what's most profitable uh but uh as far as to uh, to have an insurance uh, uh policy itself it's perfectly fine it's a, uh, you're allowed to insure your products. You, in, in, in many cases, you have to insure certain things based on the laws of, of the countries and states you live in. You have to insure your car. You have to insure your, uh, your driving. You have to insure your house. You have to insure your apartment. You have to insure certain things. There are certain things you're allowed not to insure, like your health. You don't have to insure in America, but you should and you could. And the point being is, is that there are, there's a lot of room uh, when it comes to uh, when it comes to insurance, and a person has to uh, be very very clever when it comes to certain things, especially when it requires a lot of money. Now, if it comes to uh, life insurance, uh, I personally think if somebody's going to have life insurance, then certainly uh, term insurance is the best policy if you know what to do with your money. Meaning, 
if you are a, uh, a person that knows how to invest his money and you're going to take the same amount of money that a whole life policy uh, is going to cost you uh, and you're going to use that money uh, to only a small fraction of it, 5 or 10% of it to buy term life insurance and use the other 90 or so percent to invest it into your business or whatever else that you actually know what you're doing, then certainly a term life insurance policy is a much better product for you. But if you're clueless and you don't really know what to do with the money and you have nothing to do with it, then it's better for you to, you know, hide the money in some whole life policy if it has decent rates and, and, and security. Uh, but again, I don't generally, uh, I'm not recommending any of this stuff. I'm just simply telling you that there is a benefit in, for both and it depends on the party. There are certain uh, insurance products that are outright garbage, like annuities and, uh, and the like. Uh, there are certain insurance, insurance products that are fantastic, that are necessary. Uh, so it all depends. It all depends on what you're insuring. If you're insuring something with the best interest of <clears throat> the client in mind, uh, certainly this is a, uh, a good thing for them to do. If it's talking about insurance for yourself, uh, then again, you know, are you, so long as you're honest in what you have uh, and you're not exaggerating things, you're not exaggerating your health, uh, neither for the good or the bad, and you're not uh, lying about anything as far as your assets and what you have and what your potential is, then certainly the uh, insurance is a good uh, thing to, to have. Uh, people that uh, have means, you know, have money, certainly should have insurance. People that don't have money, you know, it depends on whether they can afford it or not. But uh, with that being said, you got your few minutes of insurance education. Dylan, uh, what's the point of offering? Oh, we did this already. Uh, Jeremy, did the sota make a bracha on the drink? Uh, what's the reason for having uh, a pull towards uh, uh, towards mitzvot that one can't do? For instance, a non-kohen wanting to do bikat kohanim. Does it indicate uh, our past life? Okay, so there's two questions. As far as Sotan making a blessing on, on the water, no. She's not drinking the water to satiate herself. Uh, there's a whole process that you see in the Gemara Masechet Sotan of what takes place, but she's not drinking it for the sake of satiating it herself. Uh, as far as uh, being enticed to do things that uh, you're not allowed to do, Shlomo HaMelech says, taku. Stolen water are sweeter meaning that each one of us has a Yetzirah Tov and a Yetzirah a good inclination and a bad inclination. And each one of us has a brain enough to understand that water, if you take it, let's say you have a bottle of water, same bottle of water, you pour half of the bottle in one cup and half of the bottle in another cup. Okay? One cup is your cup and one cup is your friend's cup. Okay? Now your friend walks away. All of a sudden, you're, and you, uh, your, your brain, your Yetzirah, will tell you, drink his water. Why? It's sweeter. His water is sweeter than yours. Now your logic, your Yitzhakov, it's not sweet. It's the same water, idiot. What are you talking about? It's the same bottle. You saw it come out of the bottle and it's the same water. And uh, your Yitzhakov says, no, it's not the same water. It's that water because he has that cup and because of this and all rationalize why whatever you're forbidden to do is always better. They actually did, the uh, the, the Goim did a, uh, actually I'm not even sure if it was Goim, it might have been Jews. But anyway, scientists, researchers did a study uh, they didn't uh, realize what they were doing with this, uh, how they're answering a question in the Torah or proving it. When they did a study where they brought a, uh, a twin women, women's, two women that were twins. They were twins. And uh, apparently both of them were attractive, you know, young ladies. And uh, one of them was uh, single 
and the other one was married and they were identical twins you couldn't tell the difference just in their personal lives one was single one was married and then they asked a whole group of men which one they found more attractive which one of them they found more attractive and literally an overwhelming percentage I think it was over 90 percent of them or close to 90 percent of them chose the married girl even though there is physically no difference between them nothing you can't tell the difference between them but over 90 percent of them picked the married one not realizing it's she's married simply they picked the married one so what does it show their evil inclination wants them to go to the forbidden one why because the forbidden one if she's married she's forbidden to everybody else other than her husband the single one she's she's permissible to certain people you know if, uh, if if she's gentile and they're gentile she's permissible to them if she's jewish she's permissible only to the jews but the point being is is that overwhelming majority picked the one that's forbidden for everybody the, the married one why because we have an evil inclination and we have a good inclination and the evil inclination will always want what is forbidden to us uh and and that's that's a uh one of the greatest uh things that you can do is pay attention to it and realize how you are constantly pulling towards things that you're forbidden to do even if that is mitzvot that you're forbidden to do like one of the things that i know is very common uh yetzara for converts is uh they want to marry kohanim they want to marry kohanim for, for whatever reason or sometimes a uh, a young woman that was a uh with uh, was intimate or in a relationship with a non-jew also wants to marry a Kohen. Suddenly, she never met a Kohen in her life, but she wants to marry a Kohen. Why? Dafka this, because this is forbidden. This is forbidden. You, you marry that person, he becomes halal. He becomes a, uh, is keunized in the garbage. Uh, so the point is, is that people are constantly looking to do what they're forbidden because they have an evil inclination uh, in them. Next, I have a question. Are women held in the same regard as men when it comes to Lashonara? Since Hashem gave them uh, a, a present of nine out of the tenths of speech, it's like uh, the more you drive, uh, the more uh, prone you are to going get into an accident. Uh, yes, there is no difference between men and women. If you look at the Chafetz Chaim, Ilchot uh, Lashonara, you'll see that there is no difference in uh, between treatment between men and women, regardless of the fact that women are, uh, you know, have more tools to speak more. Uh, just because a person has more tools to speak more does not mean that they have to say Lashonara. You have a mouth to use for, for other things. You can say good things. You could say Torah. You could eat. You could simply shut it. Uh, you could uh, do other things with your, your, your mouth, just like you could do other things with the rest of your body. If a person says, well, listen, you know, he, uh, if, if they were given 90% of the uh, ability to talk, they should get a, a discount. Then you could use the same exact argument for everything else. He got uh, 90% of the good looks in the world, so he's allowed to be promiscuous sometimes. He's really strong, so he's allowed to choke people out sometimes. He is uh, really fast with his hands, so he's allowed to steal sometimes. No, there's no discounts. Hashem gave you a gift. Use it for the right things, which means that when a woman says divret Torah with her, with her friends, rather than Lashonara, she gets rewarded. When she uses it for Lashonara, she gets punished. How much punished? The Ramban says someone that says Lashonara occasionally, like once in a blue moon, they may have Olamaba. But if she says Lashonara on a, on a regular basis, or he says Lashonara on a regular basis, surely they have no Olamaba. Meaning that she can keep Shabbat, she can be modest, she can cover her hair with five mitpachot. Five, not one. Five mitpachot. 
she can attend a shiur Torah, she can give tzedakah, but she doesn't shut her mouth from Lashon Ara. She likes to say Lashon Ara. She likes to talk about her girlfriend and her husband and her this and her that and their business and that business and his friend and that friend. And you hear this. Do you know what happened this? And do you know what happened this? She has no share of the world to come. Nothing. Zero. This is the Rambam. This is not like debatable. No, no, no. And of course, Chavetz Chaim agrees and so on. So the point is that Lashon Ara is deadly. Deadly. And that's why I always tell people, if you have no Torah to say, you have no, nothing good to say that's Torah, good meaning Torah, it's better not to say anything. And surely, even if you have something good that's not Torah to say, if it's about somebody, don't say it. Why? It's better to talk about people. It's better not to talk about people unless you're warning people because this person is a heretic and against the Torah and you need to warn them their, their, their life is in danger. Simply do not talk about people. Nobody, not your sister, not your brother, not your friend, your cousin, nothing unless it's for the sake of helping somebody and everybody can say yeah but i'm just trying to help her by telling her not to hang out with him and not to hang out with her and not to hang out with this and not to hey let's, let's not be delusional you say Lashonara, you're risking olamaba olamaba it's a very very big deal now you're gonna say wait but they got so much that shouldn't they get a discount because so much maybe they could say some maybe no no there is no discount the big, the, the big merit of having the ability to speak is because Hashem wants to reward you more. Since you're not obligated to learn Torah like a man, you're not obligated to do the same mitzvot as a man, as many mitzvot as a man that are bound to time and so on. Because of that, Hashem has found different places to give you a lot of more extra reward. So a lot more extra reward for the Torah that you get your husband to learn. A lot more reward for getting your kids to learn Torah. And a lot more Torah, a lot more reward for being quiet or not saying Lashorah and saying Divrei Torah. So it's, it's important for a woman to know that Lashonara is not something that is not recommended. It's simply suicidal. You like talking about people for the sake of conversation? Okay, just, just, just think of it. Okay, the next conversation, that's the, uh, you know, the uh, crematory in, uh, in uh, Auschwitz. The next conversation, it's not Auschwitz. Perhaps it's a, uh, you know, in Dachau. Uh, uh, if it's not uh, next Lashonara, next conversation, what? You didn't uh, like the way she this and you didn't like the way she that? No problem. That's going to be in uh, one of the ghettos over there. So just think, every time you're going to have a conversation Lashonara, it's a different place in Gainom. It's a different place in the Holocaust. That's what it is. So if it's worth it for you to talk about him and her and them and this and that because you have nothing in your brain, just think, okay, for each conversation, it's a different concentration camp. If it's worth it for you still, enjoy the conversations and uh, what comes with them. But if a person understands that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is not joking, he's not joking when it comes to Lashon Ara, he's not joking when it comes to any of the mitzvot. And when the Rambam says a person has no share of the world to come, he's also not joking. So it's a very, very big deal. Now, of course, a person needs to know that uh, it's, a, uh, it's, it's not easy. It's not easy to not say Lashonara if you talk a lot. Which means that regardless of whether you're male or female, generally speaking, it's better not to talk that much. Uh, the the, uh, the Rabbi Chaim Ivolozhin uh, writes, uh, that a person's lifetime is shortened based on his speech, meaning if he talks a lot of nonsense or she talks a lot of nonsense, she's cutting her life short because each person was given 
a sachmilim, a certain amount of words to be said during their lifetime. Meaning if they talk a lot of things that are not Torah related, they're in essence shortening their lifetime. She likes to talk on the phone. She likes to talk to our girlfriends, have coffee, and they have three hour conversations about absolutely nothing. She is in essence committing suicide, even if it's not Lashonara. Needless to say, if it is Lashonara, that only brings evil to the world because the point of Lashonara is to distance the world from other people. And the punishment for it is what Hashem is going to bring that person, which is the world is going to be distanced from them. That's how HaKadosh Baruch Hu punished people at the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, where a, uh, the, the people that said Lashonara were thrown out of the camp. Why is a measure for measure, just like you tried to get that person you spoke Lashonara about, uh, thrown out of the community so people stay away from him, Hashem ended up throwing you out of the camp so everybody stays away from you. And in fact, every time somebody sees you outside of the camp, you are obligated to say, Tzarat, Tzarat, meaning I'm infected with Tzarat, stay away from me. You have to announce to the whole world that you are infected because you said Lashonara. The whole world has to know you're about Lashonara. And if that's not enough, before you even got thrown out of the camp, they, everyone knew that you had Lashonara. Why? Because your wall had all types of interesting colors on it and uh, the, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the clothing and sometimes the body itself. And guess what? If your next door neighbor, your next door neighbor is a Baal Lashonara, you also get uh, uh, punished for it. Why? Because when, if you have a connecting wall between you and your next door neighbor, and he says Lashonara, there's going to be a tzarat on the wall. If that wall is not connecting, on that connecting wall, you have to take down that wall. But that wall hurts you too. So how come? Woe to the wicked and woe to his neighbor. Meaning, how did you pick such a neighbor? If you are a good neighbor, you would help your, your, your friend not say Lashonara instead of listening to his Lashonara or simply ignoring his Lashonara or her Lashonara. So the fact that you stayed there and he continued being a sinner, she continued being a sinner, is, a, uh, is in essence a woe to you, it's a rebuke to you also. But the point being is, is to first and foremost understand, somebody comes to you and they're not a rabbi, they're not a rabbani, they're not a, uh, anyone that's looking to help anybody, they simply have to talk about people, run away from those people. Run away from those people lest you get punished with them, just like, a Kadosh, just like uh, uh, Moshe said to Am Yisrael in Parashat Korach. Run away from those people. Don't talk about people. Unless, again, you are in a position to help people. You know, rabbis, unfortunately, have to listen to a, a lot of Lashonara. Not because they want to gossip, unless they reshaim themselves, but rather because they need to know how to help people. Sometimes they have to hear certain things that couples say about each other. Sometimes they have to hear what siblings say about each other, or friends, or colleagues, or business partners say about each other, in order to be able to help people. This is permissible, because they're listening for the sake of helping but if they become part of the conversation, they like to say, you know, different things that are against the Torah, then they're, they're you know, contributing to the crime and they'll get punished for it too. So may Hashem save us from, from, all of this, uh, from all of this stuff. But the point is, is that it's very important for a person to know. If you're not in a position to help, or you don't even have the intention to help, the best thing to do is never talk about people. Don't talk about people. Not good, not bad. Not good, not bad. Now, one of the saving graces that we found is Lord Hashem, uh, years ago, we did a shiur about it in Oshana Rabbah, I gave a discussion about it, is that Kadosh Baruch Hu had mercy, mercy on us, and uh, the, uh, there is no deen of Lashonara on Goim and on uh, Jews that are secular. Mechale Shabbat. There's no deen of Lashonara, meaning that if you say Lashonara or have said Lashonara about non-Jews 
or about uh, Jews that are acting like non-Jews by not observing mitzvot, there's no problem at all. You could uh, do it until you're blue in the face. You shouldn't do it, and uh, it's not recommended at all to do it, but it's not a sin. Why shouldn't you do it then if it's not a sin? Because if you get yourself used to saying bad things, or Lashon in general, about uh, uh, secular people or about goyim, it's only a matter of time before you'll become accustomed to also say bad things or Lashon about kosher people. So it's better to not say anything about anybody. But uh, as far as the law itself, there's no deen of Lashon on, on secular people, as well as there's no deen of Lashon on goyim. They're in essence both treated like goyim. They're both treated like idolaters, according to Allah. But uh, that was actually a mercy from Hashem. That was a mercy from Hashem to make such a law. Uh, and, and, and because if we were obligated uh, in the deen of Lashon uh, on all of mankind, pretty much you would have nobody in Gan Eden. It's, it's, you'd, you'd just be empty. Just uh, because it's, at some point, uh, a person uh, could say something without even realizing it. So it's a, that's literally a mercy from Hashem. So the point being is, if it's a kosher person, simply stay away from ever talking about them. Stay away from talking about them at all, period. Good, bad, definitely not. Stay away from talking about them. If it's a not such a good person, unless you're trying to help somebody. Unless you're trying to help somebody. But generally speaking, I've already said this time and time again, the, low, you know, the, 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 the lowest form of conversation is talking about other people's money, other people's possessions. And that's generally one of the most common forms of Lashonara. It's the lowest form of conversation simply because it shows that there's nothing in your life and there's nothing in your brain. There's nothing in your head, nothing. There's like maybe a, a few gerbils in there, maybe some cockroaches. There's no wisdom there. Talking about other people and, and, and what they do with their life and they went here and they went there and they bought this and they bought that. It's a very, very uh, uh, low form of intellect. As, uh, as what, uh, but again, it's interesting. It's juicy. It's a... Uh, uh, you know, you, especially when you have something spicy. Oh, the divorce. Oh, the marriage. The scandal. The, the is, the that. People love talking about that stuff. Yeah, because the Yetzirah also loves it. Because that's how he fishes many, many people. Many people. Let me get this for a second. Next. Why does Hashem say in Genesis 6 6 that he regretted creating man? Didn't he know the future? Uh, Hashem can't make mistakes and yet he regrets making this decision. I'm confused. Yeah, there are certain things that are said in the Torah in order to uh, clarify things to our, to our ear, meaning soften things to our ear. Like Hashem says, he has a, he took out Am Yisrael with a strong arm. Obviously, everyone knows that he doesn't have an arm. Uh, but he took us out of uh, uh, Egypt with a strong arm, which is implying several things. One of the things that it implies is that uh, Am Yisrael did not see themselves as anything other than slaves. So in essence, he had to change nature. It was a supernatural thing, not just to bring the plagues uh, and destroy Egypt, but it was supernatural to get Am Yisrael to rethink re- of themselves, uplift themselves to a point where they no longer saw themselves as slaves because they didn't see themselves as free people. They simply saw themselves as they were born to be slaves. Uh, so that was, in essence, one of the uh, supernatural things that Hashem had to do with a strong arm, meaning a miracle of miracles. So the same concept is with uh, when he says that he regretted creating man, is that this creation 
brought him uh, sorrow because he did not want to create in order to destroy. He wanted to create in order for people to serve him, in order for people to sanctify his name. But unfortunately, part of the creation is a uh, the, the corruption. So he regrets that he has to to uh, to see this because this is in essence, uh, in order to get the uh, the fruits, you sometimes have to uh, plant a seed and watch it rot, uh, and and that was in essence part of the creation itself. So just because it's part of the creation doesn't mean it doesn't hurt him. Doesn't mean just because Hashem sends somebody to Gainom doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt him. That uh, in obviously in his capacity that uh, he's uh, burning his own uh, his own child, his own creation. Hashem doesn't, didn't create the world in order to punish people, but he does it because he has a Torah that's a rule book both for man and for himself. These rules are for himself too. He applies the Torah to himself uh, in order to bring order to the world. So it's a, uh, just because this is uh, the, the destruction of this person uh, or those people, is what the Torah decreed. It doesn't mean that uh, Hashem is happy about it. The same thing that we learned from when uh, Hashem drowned all of the uh, Egyptians. Am Yisrael was singing and the angels wanted to sing along with Am Yisrael and HaKadosh Baruch Hu rebuked the angels and said to them, uh, my creation is being destroyed. These Egyptians, they're my creation. They're being destroyed and you're celebrating? So the angels answered saying, yeah, but Am Yisrael is, uh, is, is celebrating. You know, so Hashem says they're right to celebrate because they suffered under their enemy, the Egyptians. You didn't suffer under the Egyptians and therefore you don't have a right to, uh, to celebrate uh, so long as, uh, you know, this is my creation. So again, there is a, although a, uh, it, there's a verses in the Torah, there's a whole song in the Torah that talks about the celebration of Am Yisrael that we celebrate until this day that uh, the Egyptians were destroyed. Still, it does not mean that Hashem is happy about it, meaning he didn't create them in order to destroy them. Uh, so it does bring him sorrow that is it is creation. But nonetheless, it is a necessary uh, uh, evil that's in the world. Why did Hashem ask Bilam, who are those people uh, you are with? Uh, this is in order to uh, give uh, Bilam the benefit of the doubt to see if he will speak the truth the same way that he asked Adam Arishon in Genesis, where are you? Uh, obviously, Hashem knows where he is, but he wanted, uh, he wanted Adam Arishon to, in essence, unveil himself and start doing tshuva. Uh, you know, and that's uh, one of the things that uh, he did with him. He also did with his son, uh, Cain, uh, when he asked him, where is your brother? Uh, and, uh, you know, Cain uh, answered, that uh, is also in Genesis, shortly after the, uh, that section you just asked about, well, I just mentioned about Adam Elishon. Cain uh, said, what is, am I my brother's keeper? And Hashem answers him, the, the, the bloods of your brother are screaming to me. Uh, meaning all of the, the, the descendants that were ever supposed to come out of your uh, brother are already screaming to me because you murdered him. So obviously Hashem knew. It's just that Hashem, in essence, is trying to uh, get them to... Uh, 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 unveil themselves and become more open to doing tshuva and repenting. Uh, whereas if Hashem attacked them right away and said, why'd you do that? Then literally they can die just from fear. So Hashem is, uh, you know, wants them to admit, wants them to repent. When they do, then they get uh, rewarded for all of it. When they don't, they get punished. One of the examples we see, the Gemara says, is the way that... Uh, um, 
Shaul HaMelech uh, answered to Hashem's rebuke versus David HaMelech. Shaul HaMelech was rebuked by the prophet and, and uh, instead when he told him, why didn't you kill, why didn't you do the will of Hashem? Uh, you were supposed to kill all of Amalek. You left the women and uh, you left the, uh, 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 the sheep. Uh, why did you leave? And uh, Shaul HaMelech, as righteous as he was, he made a mistake and he said, oh, I th- the people... Uh, said that uh, this would be good for Kolbanot. He blamed it on other people and Hashem punished him. And then he said, no, no, I'm sorry. So it was too late. Hashem already decided that David Melech is going to take your uh, kinghood. David Melech was also uh, 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 t- uh, given the same exact test with Batsheva. With Batsheva. And uh, when, uh, you know, when as soon as his, uh, uh, you know, the, the prophet came to him and gave him an analogy that in essence uh, to show him that uh, you know what do you think of this person that he has everything and uh, versus another person who doesn't have much and this person has this sheep and the other person has many sheep and the person that has many sheep takes the one sheep that the other guy has and David Melech didn't know he was talking about him and said oh death penalty he's a rasha and then the prophet said it's you and he realized exactly what he's talking about and immediately instead of making excuses for himself he says, Khatati, and then Hashem stopped him right there. That's finished. That's it. Because he was going to do Khatati, Abiti, Pashati. Meaning, I sinned uh, without knowing. I sinned intentionally. I sinned on purpose to make Hashem, you know, there's three levels of sin. So, uh, David Melech was going to say all three on himself. But as soon as he said, Khatati, as soon as I sinned, Hashem told the prophet to tell him right away, stop. Don't talk anymore. That's it. Finished. Enough. Enough. He accepted his tshuva, and, you know, blessing came after that. But uh, the point being is, is that. That was the big difference between uh, what uh, response David Melech did versus Shaul Melech. So we see that there are times that Hakadosh Baruch Hu knocked on the uh, on the uh, they call it on the head of uh, certain people uh, to see how they respond. Uh, Bilam was one of them, Cain, uh, Damarishon, and unfortunately they uh, you know it was a uh, Hashem said <laughs> the Gemara says when he knocked on the uh, on the can. Uh, he only found that the can was full of urine. Uh, <laughs> that's the language of the Gemara. Uh, it was uh, like a, uh, you know, it was nothing. It was uh, worthless. They didn't respond the right way. But David Melech, he responded the right way. So Bezat Hashem, may, may we uh, respond the right way when, uh, if the time and, uh, you know, comes and Hashem tests us. Genom, uh, will this end... When Mashiach comes, like I've heard, whoever told you that Genom ends when Mashiach comes, either is a liar or has never studied the subject. The Gemara Masechet, Rosh Hashanah, page 17a, says that, and there's other places, Masechet Bav Metziah, Masechet Sanhedrin, Masechet Shabbat, and there's many, many other places that talk about Genom. There's also the Shara Gmul by the Ramban, there's the Rishit Chochmash, Masechet Genom, uh, there's many, many sources that talk about Genom being eternal. There's also a verse in the Torah uh, with a, uh, 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 the prophet Isaiah. Uh, and there's many other places that Genom is talked about. There's a place in Genom that's forever, meaning that there are seven places in Genom. I have a whole shiur about Genom. Uh, soon we'll have a movie uh, to, to present it in a certain way. But uh, the... Uh, Genom is has seven chambers, if you will. The first six chambers will end at some point, but not the seventh. The seventh one is uh, forever. 
uh, you know, so it's not, it's, that's not, so whoever told you that Genom ends once Mashiach comes, uh, is not only wrong about the part of it that's forever, but is also wrong about the part of it that's not forever, because just because Mashiach comes doesn't mean that the wicked people, their sentence ends. No, their sentence could be for another thousand years, could be for another five years, could be for another three days. Just because Mashiach came doesn't mean that salvation comes to everybody at the same time. So whoever said it uh, most likely is ignorant, but could potentially be a combination of ignorance and lying. But there is no source that says that uh, Genom will end when Mashiach comes. It doesn't exist. Great uh, Rabbi, all the way from Yerushalayim, Baruch uh, okay, let's see. We'll take one one question. We're already almost at three hours. Who said that when back in the day when I studied, I saw every person has merit in mitzvah? They've done the world come. I have no idea. Uh, I don't know what you're saying. Uh, regarding a previous topic discussed earlier on Lashonara, is a private conversation with your spouse still uh, Lashonara, or if it won't leave your household? Uh, there are some Chachamim that say that it's between a, a man and his wife, there's no deen of Lashon Ara, but I would still be very careful with it. Still be very careful with it. A uh, few reasons. Could be punishment. and uh, Okay, you're answering somebody else. Uh, okay, I think I answered, Baruch Hashem, almost everything. Uh, I think everything, Baruch Hashem. Uh, so listen, anyone that uh, has... Enjoy the shiur, at the very least, has uh, watched the shiur until this point. Please share it, share it today, share it tomorrow when it's posted on our different channels, on YouTube and on Facebook and on the app. Share it with people so other people can learn, so other people get closer to Hashem. If you contribute, you can donate, you can help us. Uh, certainly, this is the time to help. There's a, a lot more needs now than there has been ever in, uh, in history. Uh, so uh, partner up with us, whether it's for the uh, raffle or for other things. This is the time to uh, step up and do as much as we can to show Hakadosh Baruch Hu that we love Him, to show Hakadosh Baruch Hu that we're uh, you know we need Him, and to show Hakadosh Baruch Hu that we're putting everything on the line for the sake of uh, His honor. Baruch Adonai Leolam. Amen veAmen. Hi everybody, very happy to announce a major event coming up in Eretz Yisrael. This event is going to be unlike any other we've done as an organization. Last year we had a group of uh, young guys that completed the entire Shas, Bavli, and the Mishnayot in a single year. This year we're going to have the entire foundation of the Oral Torah completed in a single night. Uh, our own dear Ephraim uh, and other Talmudim of the organization. In a single night we'll have the completion of the Shas, Bavli, Shas Mishnayot, 
לזוהר הקדוש, זוהר חדש, תיקוני הזוהר, and the Shulchan Aruch. Years and years of toil, lots of effort, it's coming to fruition, and uh, in a single night, all of it would be completed, to sanctify Kadosh Baruch Hu's name. This is going to be a night where many Rabbanim, many Tzadikim will be joining us at this event. There'll be hundreds and hundreds of people at the event in Eretz Yisrael, uh, including the Rishon Etzion, Rabbi Yitzchak Yosef, of course, our own very dear Rabbi Fahim Kachlon. I myself will also be joining, coming to Eretz Yisrael for the first time in many years, to join this monumental event, this monumental Kiddush Hashem, in order to sanctify Kadosh Baruch Hu's name, to show him how much we love his Torah, how dedicated we are to his Torah, and to be able to, Be'ezrat Hashem, give chizuk to Am Yisrael in another way. Be'ezrat Hashem, Yirgul, Be'ezrat Hashem, mit'ated la'asot kenes gadol, shama yeh siyum al ikarei ha'torah sheba'alpeh, שזה סיום כל התלמוד בבלי, סיום כל השישה סדרי המשנה, סיום כל הזוהר הקדוש ותיקוני הזוהר, וסיום כל השולחן ערוך. בדרך כלל לוקח זמן כדי לסיים את כל הספרים הללו, 30 שנה, 40 שנה, ובסייעתא דשמיא הארגון בעזרת השם עושה את הכנס לכל כלל ישראל. כולם מוזמנים. We're looking forward for uh, this event. We're also looking forward to seeing some of you that are going to be joining us. There are going to be some sponsorship opportunities for anyone that wants to uh, be able to be a part of it. Uh, and of course, there'll be a, uh, a opportunity for any of you that want to join us uh, one way or the other. Uh, last but not least, there will also be a raffle that we'll be uh, announcing very soon for anyone that wants to uh, join the raffle and also be able to do Kiruv at the same time. The winner of the raffle will win a uh, flight ticket to Eretz Yisrael uh, and be able to join us at the event. So uh, please look out for more news. Looking forward to seeing you at this event. And Be'ezod Hashem, Na'aseh v'Natsliach.